Hello everybody, you are listening to The Who Storian, and I should know that because I am Colin Baker, the sixth doctor. You've got good sense, keep listening. Hello, this is Fraser Hines and you're listening to The Who Storian. Hi, this is Yiji Cho, I play Chang Lee in the Doctor Who TV movie, and you're listening to The Who Storian. And welcome to the Historian Winterly. Once again, I am Shannon, and once again, I am joined by my Whovian mentor, the man who introduced me to the Hooniverse itself, my good friend from Alberta, Canada. In uh, I'll call it snowy Alberta, snowy Calgary, but it's actually not apparently right now. Um, Stephen Windsor, how are you, Steve? I'm good, my friend. Doing very good. It's uh, definitely not snowy here. It's actually pretty warm, so. And this is why I hate you. This is this yeah, is why I hate you. I know. I know. I, I hate to tell you when it's warm and not snowing here because I yes. know it was cold out on the East Coast. But it's always cold on the East Coast, my friend. It's always hey, cold on the East Coast. Um, we had cold weather a while ago, so uh, this is good now. Well, Steve, I want to first thank you for uh, joining me because... Um, since our last show, which I did uh, have some uh, good feedback from, people enjoy listening to us talk and listening oh, to us awesome. review movies. Um, so we're going to keep doing that, obviously. Um, since the last show, I have had um, I, I've I've had an attempt to have other uh, guests on as well because I want to try to get as many guests as I can during the Zoom process. And um, of course, one of the individuals I won't uh, I won't go into too much detail about it for uh, privacy reasons, but. One of the individuals that was originally scheduled to be the guest after our last show um, actually had a, um, I guess what you could call a mental health episode. And um, when I messaged this person to inquire as to their time frame and availability for uh, a show, uh, the response was very um, not, not good. And I had to take measures to, uh, help correct that uh, again i'm just using privacy but it was a very um it was a very bad situation this person was uh very uh, quickly uh, affected by uh negative mental health um so because of that um that's been rectified and the person is on the mend and i'm glad to hear it and it is a um unfortunate really sad situation that um this person had existing mental issues and uh covid has exacerbated it greatly um as it has with everything. And that's one of the reasons why I am doing this podcast in this format um, and speaking to my good friends and stuff, including this person. Um, 
because, you know, if we let COVID win, then uh, we're all going to be in for a world of hurt. And um, talking about non-COVID related things is uh, obviously productive and it is uh, good for the heart, good for the soul. And uh, I've often said that Doctor Who is uh, soul food to me. So we're definitely going to talk about Doctor Who today. But I do want to thank you for uh, I won't call you a backup plan because uh, you you are um, my good buddy. And we've certainly had some great, great conversations. And I love talking to you about stuff. Uh, I love talking to you about Doctor Who because we've been doing that most of our lives. Um, we have. So, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time once again to uh, come on the show and uh, to provide your uh, unique perspective on so many things. And I just hope that um, those who listen to this show um, and are aware of um aware of the efforts to um, to bring some light into the darkness right now. Um, I appreciate that. We're going to try to uh, put some smiles on faces and just talk about stuff that's not, you know, it's not weighty issues. It's just ridiculous movies and uh, fun stuff like that. So, uh, so anyway, again, sir, I thank you and I appreciate the fact that you're here. I'm ready to geek out with you. <laughs> Good to hear. All right. So let's first off now, one of the things that I, uh, am uh, known to do on the original Who story. And of course, people who are listening to this for the first time may not be aware that this is a um, technically a spinoff of an existing show called The Historian Quarterly. Well, the show is called The Historian. It's named after a magazine called The Historian Quarterly. It's a spinoff of a spinoff. It's a spinoff of a spinoff. Thank you. Um, so the original show uh, in all its glory can still be seen and heard. Um, on the historian.ca there's almost 10 years worth of podcasting there videos podcasts blogs and myself and my normal co-host uh, my regular co-host style and steve lake um have been doing that for quite some time and this is a branch off of that this gives me the opportunity to speak to people such as you that i normally wouldn't get the chance to on the regular historian so uh so on the original show uh one of the things we did which was a um an adaptation of the historian magazine itself uh, that we both worked on over the years was uh, a section called the Motes of news. And that was of course, just a roundup of news stories pertaining to Dr. Who and uh, pertaining to the world of Whovianism. So uh, we're going to get into some of that. Um, I do want to start off with some Dr. Who, and then from there, we're going to go off into other tangents, including two great, great, great vigilante movies from the eighties called the exterminator. So that's going to be fun. Um, so beginning it, Steve, let's start off with the bunch of news. Uh, the regular show had its own sound effect for that. And I'm just not going to try to do that on this one. So uh, we'll just begin the bunch of news is what we're going to say. And the first story. All right. I wanted to bring up to you uh, is a longstanding, um, a, a longstanding thing with me, sir, is, is the fact that I have often noticed that um Colin Baker's doctor, the sixth doctor, my favorite, has not been well served in expanded universe the way he should be. And I do have a new story mm -hmm. that actually sort of redresses that balance a bit. And the uh, it's funny oh, really? because speaking of COVID, during the COVID period, um, not just us, of course, uh, of, of, of everybody, but everybody has tried to do something different and try to... Um, just bring some light to the darkness, as it were. And one of the things that occurred was that the um, the editor, one of the contributing editors to Doctor Who magazine, uh, Emily Cook, her name is, she started off a process, and I believe this was suggested to her by a fan, perhaps. Um, but it began with a process of doing 
uh, just random Doctor Who, mostly new series episodes um, on Twitter and which in which people could contribute uh, to hashtags and have a conversational watch along uh, tweet along, I guess, of uh, of Doctor Who. Um, and what began as a uh, tweet along with uh, the involvement of Russell T. Davies, of course, the uh, former uh, producer of new series Doctor Who, um, actually ended up being that he found something that um, contributes to the Sixth Doctor uh, very much so. And he found an old script that he had written back in the 1980s and uh, was intended for the Sixth Doctor, who was at the time the Doctor on TV at the time. So that's a new story, and I do want to bring that up. And uh, just one second, and now I'm using Zoom software, so bear with me. <laughs> so, yeah, here we go. It's uh, a story from Big Finish, um, which was on the 4th of March. Uh, the story is called It's All in the Mind of the Hodiac. And the story is that a long-lost Russell T. Davis Doctor Who story with some unfinished business is being brought to life on audio by Big Finish Productions. And I'm a big fan of Big Finish's output when it comes to Doctor Who audio plays. Uh, Conceived in 1986 and rediscovered almost 35 years later, Mind of the Hodiac will star Colin Baker and Bonnie Langford as the sixth Doctor and Mel. The full cast audio version is expanded from the original script into two episodes and is co-written by Russell T. Davis and Scott Hancock. It is already called The Lost Stories, Mind of the Hodiac, available to pre-order as a collector's edition CD box set, which in the UK is priced at £14.99, or a digital download at £12.99. Uh, writer Russell T. Davies said, I was preparing for Emily Cook's Doctor Who tweet along for The Runaway Bride. I reached for the script. I pulled an old stack of papers out of a box, and there was Mind of the Hodiac, a story written back in 1986 on an electric typewriter in a bedsit in Rowath, Cardiff. It's the only copy. I've forgotten all about it. It's one whole hour-long episode plus a detailed synopsis of the second, final episode starring the Sixth Doctor and Mel. It's a galaxy-spanning adventure as the mysterious Hodiac begins a deadly hunt, putting an ordinary Earth family in terrible danger. There are psychic powers, tungsten warriors, and a vital role for the Doctor's coat. Producer Emily Cook added, when Russell told me he'd rediscovered his forgotten Doctor Who script, it was like finding buried treasure. We joked it would inevitably become a big finish release, and a few enthusiastic emails later, the wheels were in motion. It was Russell's Doctor Who which introduced me to and made me fall in love with the show back in, back in 2005, so I'm thrilled to be producing his first ever Doctor Who script. I can't wait to bring Mind of the Hodiac to life on audio, and I hope fans are intrigued and excited to hear it. What a wonderful thing to come out of lockdown. So I have to agree that that is um, something that I, you know, nobody was expecting, and I mean, Russell T. Davies uh, for... All of the uh, work he's done on Doctor Who, especially like, I mean, he's one of the ones credited with making Doctor Who uh, relevant to um, to us today in the, in the 2000s. Um, I was very excited when I saw this because, again, it pertains to my doctor. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, and also because Big Finish generally does fantastic work. So your thoughts on yes, that, sir? Do. Your thoughts on that? Well, that's absolutely fantastic. I was not expecting that. Um, I'm also a really big fan of The Sixth Doctor, and the the audio plays have been really, really well done. So if they adapt that and, and they get Colin Baker to do... Um, it, it is Colin Baker that's going to do it, isn't it? It's Colin Baker and it Money Langford. written for him. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yep. That's excellent. 
because I guess you could adopt it to, or adapt it, I should say, to any doctor, but um, wow, I would love to hear that. That is cool, man. Yeah, it's it's rather awesome because I do enjoy it when, I mean, there's there's an entire listing of uh, of lost stories, and every doctor has had lost stories in the sense of, right from the 60s onward, stories that were either not didn't fully go into production for whatever reason, right. whether it be budget or they had to be rewritten, whatever it is. And every doctor from the 1960s to the present, I have noticed that between target books and big finish, they tend to just, and, and Doctor Who magazine, they do the best they can to unearth all these old stories and give them, you know, a fresh coat of paint, a new life in whatever mm-hmm. form they can. Like there's been, multiple stories in Colin Baker's era. And we've mentioned before about uh, the original plan for season 23, which became trial of the time Lord. There was a yes. whole range of lost stories for that, which was some of them were adapted into big or uh, into target books first, and then laterally became um, big finish audios. There's even adaptations of the doctor who knew adventures with Sylvester McCoy as well. So there's just fantastic. Like I love, I love Big Finish. I think Big Finish is the finest producer of Doctor Who um, going. Like, I mean, I far love Big Finish more Mm -hmm. so than the current television series by, you know, by leaps and bounds. So I'm very, very pleased by that. They are certainly fantastic. It absolutely is. And the other part of it, though, Steve, as you and I both know, as good Canadian kids that we are, boy, (laughs) it's going to be difficult to get anything physical in terms of CDs or box sets and stuff from Big Finish, you've got experience with things that have been shipped from England. I've got experience with it. Man, yeah. oh, man. I don't yeah. know if it's – I don't know what it is, but I guess it has to be the European, the Canadian conversion rate. But when I initially see something such as this that is listed as, oh, this is only £14.99 pence to pick it up as you know CDs, physical CDs, which I'd love to have, then you look at the exchange rate and you go, man, this is like a hundred dollars. If I was to order this to, to come here, you know? And then the shipping on top of it is just enormous because, well, Canada is kind of a big country and there's a whole lot of space in between all the towns. So shipping here is a lot compared to the UK and the U S we pay more on shipping than I think any other country in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing that gets me, too, is that you would think, okay, well, if it's coming from the United Kingdom, specifically England, mm-hmm. excuse me, and it is being mailed to Canada, specifically Newfoundland, location-wise, we're pretty close. Like, we're only across, you know, across right the, across the water, pond, you know, across the pond. Yet, that's not the case, because if you ship something... If something is shipped from England to here, it doesn't come directly from England to here. It goes from England to Calgary, maybe, to Toronto, maybe, to Halifax, maybe. And eventually it has a cross-Canada adventure before it comes here. I'll never understand that. I guess it has to do with, you know, I'm guessing it has to do with they got to check what's being shipped and make sure it's legal. And, you know, you have to send something to an area that they can scan for that kind of stuff. And I'm guessing they don't have that capacity here in Newfoundland, but... Boy, it is frustrating, and it really does limit my ability to get, you know, quality big finish audio, uh, at least the ones I pay for, because I have the app, and I will recommend anybody who wants big finish 
Um, if you get the app on your smart device um, or your laptop, whatever you use, if you get the Big Finish app, you can stream stories. You can purchase stories, yes, um, and you know to download directly to the app, which you can then listen to. Or you can stream the free stories because every Monday since the lockdown, they've had what's called lockdown loads and they're free stories. Some of them are only um, excerpts and some are like fragments of stories and some are like maybe part one of a four part story, for example. But there Mm -hmm. is some complete stories uh, in the in the short trips range. There's a few complete stories of different doctors. Uh, It gives you, you know, some trailers and stuff like that. So it gives you an idea and a sample of what Big Finish is capable of. And I absolutely have enjoyed a lot of the free Big Finish that's come out since the lockdown. Well, that's excellent, man. I'm glad to hear that they have a lot more downloads available. And that's certainly, that's probably a better option if you're living on the other side of a planet. Yes. Instead of yeah. ordering physical media, you can you can just download it. Of course, the, the big problem with that is the more you download onto your phone, the heavier your phone will get. So yeah, there's that too. And I mean, I, I, you and I are, you know, you're one of my tech gurus. So you and I have had multiple conversations about the limitations of our smartphones and, and the uh, issues that are uh, relevant when it comes to smartphones. I I don't have a lot of space on my phone. So one of the things I noticed though, that it's a little bit of an irritant um, is that if you download the app, the big finish app, Right. Instead of streaming it, you still have to download the file to your phone. I don't oh. really understand why that is. Like, for example, if I was to listen to. That's interesting. If I was to listen to, say, one of the short trips, right, which is maybe mm-hmm. maybe 45 minutes long, roughly. I mean, yeah. that's still a file that's about maybe 230, 240 megs. Now, it, that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're up against the wall of, of, of space on your phone already, which I yeah. am then you you have to make adjustments to, okay, well, I'm going to have to remove a couple of apps and, you know, undownload a few things just to listen to this and then, you know, replace it all later. So there is that limitation to it. But for somebody with a a more high-powered phone um, with a lot more space, they're not even going to notice that, you know, notice that. But I uh, I've certainly noticed that. I just, I was a bit disappointed that was the case. I was hoping that it would just be, you could stream it, which is no problem, no space. That, but that would be good. I'm I'm thinking maybe it's because a lot of people are on the go. They might be on their way to work, and you're you're going through tunnels where you're losing Wi-Fi connections, and it's just easier if you download it. You you can listen to it continuously without any breaks. Sure. So yeah. that's probably. I, I don't know. I have noticed that. Um, you know, I love Big Finish, and I, I mean, I, I, I really do. I hate to criticize them because they're a, um, they're a small company um, that have obviously employed all of our favorite Doctor Who stars. It's not like That's all bad. of the, it's not like the Colin Bakers and Sylvester McCoys of this world are getting a regular paycheck from the BBC these days for appearing in, you know, Doctor Who today. They're not. They're, they're, they're working off of their legacy, and they're getting a lot more material published and produced. Um, based on things like Big Finish. So I understand, like, a lot of people criticize them for being a bit expensive. It's like, guys, they're a small company, and they're paying a lot of actors and a lot of production personnel. And then you got to look at, you pay the actors, you pay the people, such as yourself, Steve, to do graphic design for these uh, for these box arts. Then you yeah, have to pay yeah. for, you know, they have an entire production facility that has to burn discs and 
make box sets and they got to wrap it and shrink wrap it and distribute it. So, I mean, you got to look at all that. I mean, obviously, yes, technically this stuff probably shouldn't cost top dollar, but it does. And I mean, they are more, they're quality too, right? Like you're not, you're not getting something that's not quality. You're, 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 you're really getting quality. And I would argue that for the same amount of money, if you were to buy one big finish um, story, that is equivalent in price to, let's say, for example, Jody Whitaker's last season on Blu-ray, you're getting right. a lot more value and more quality entertainment from the big finish than you would from Jody. That's just my opinion, right? No, I think you're absolutely right. I've listened to a lot of big finish over the last few decades, and they are always absolutely fantastic. No matter who I'm listening to, whether it's Colin Baker or Sylvester McCoy, it, it always seems like I always say it's a surreal experience because you know you've seen every single episode that they've put out, but here you are listening to a new episode. It's almost right. like the TV is on in the corner of the room. You're not watching it. You're just listening to it. Right. They got the old theme song on. They got the, the same old voices you're used to. Right. And... Oh, and the same the same classic special effects and the music and stuff. Everything is so evocative yeah, this, of its era, right? Like if you're it, listening it to totally sounds like Doctor Who and Absolutely. Done, you're listening so you to, don't need to see it. You you can picture everything that's going on just by hearing absolutely, all the yeah. sounds. If you're listening to a Tom Baker, you're gonna you're gonna feel that it's like the nineteen seventies. If you're listening to a Sylvester yeah. McCoy, it's gonna feel like the late 1980s it's you just can, it's just they're, they're so good at him chomping on those it, jelly babies <laughs> exactly exactly yeah all right so um one last story about uh big finish before we move on to other doctor who related matters uh unfortunately there was a passing oh. of an actor by the name of david bailey um years and years and years ago um uh, when when the original uh, Trial of a Time Lord season 23 uh, was being planned, the original plan was to do a story called the Celestial, or excuse me, called the Nightmare Fair with Gray mm. Williams that uh, wrote it. Right. And um, it was going to be a return of Michael Goff as the toy maker, the Celestial yeah. toy maker, which would have been absolutely tremendous. But of course, at the time, he said he would. And then, of course, they didn't produce it. And then years and years go by, and first it comes out as a um, as a Target book. I remember reading it as one of the lost stories yeah. of Target. I had that one as well. You did. In fact, I probably bought it from you, more than likely. Oh, you could have. Um, so then later on, Big Finish produced their own lost story where they literally just cast Colin Baker to finally do that story uh, in a range of stories, the lost stories, as we've mentioned before. So the actor they chose to replace the toy maker, because obviously by this point, Michael Goff has long passed away. Yeah. Uh, and I believe I read that they still approached him and he had retired from acting by this point. So he declined it. Um, and that's one thing I love about Big Finish. When and where available, they'll get the original person as best they possibly can. That's awesome. Um, but in this case, they had no choice but to recast it. So they... They casted an actor who had been in Doctor Who before by the name of David Bailey. And he had been in the 1970s Doctor Who. In fact, I'm going to look up and see what it was that he actually originally was in. 
Um, off the top of my head, I know it's a Tom Baker story. Off the top of my head, but I will look. Uh, in the meantime, as the toy maker, I mean, for a character that only appeared on television once and was played by, you know, De- De- uh, Michael Goff, it was such an iconic role that it was hard to imagine anybody else portraying the toy maker. Yet, when you listen to specifically that story, The Nightmare Fair, he also appeared in a short trip uh, story called Solitaire in the Eighth Doctor's range. Um, boy, was he ever good. I, I gushed uh, in a review once about, uh, which I believe I put on Goodreads, uh, just how good that story solitaire is if you're going to buy one big finished story and you want to you know get a complete story in about 45 minutes or so the story of the toy maker who's menacing the eight doctors companion charlie is just absolutely brilliant and i had already heard him obviously in the nightmare fair with colin baker and i thought wow that was outstanding and he just keeps it up in uh, in this story as well so i was really really heartened to see that he did such an, a wonderful job in reprising and recreating the toy maker on audio for his own benefit. And boy, is it ever good. I mean, I can't, I can't say enough. So I'm bringing up now the information from Dr. Who news.net, because again, this, um, his passing took place uh, about a week ago as we record this now. Um, and I want to make sure I got the details. I do know that he was 83 years old. I do know that. Um, and I got to scroll down past all the information about the Doctor Who magazine. Uh, there's a lot of stuff here. Boy, you got to love these guys, man. All right, bear with me because this is back a ways. This is back further than I thought. We're going back in time, Doctor. We're going back in time. Well, that's appropriate for uh, Doctor Who. It very much is. So I, I'm guessing they won't be doing another Toymaker um, story again. Well, unless they novel. Yeah. I mean, I read a, um, I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in, um, I'm just typing this stuff in. So bear with me, folks. Um, this is on the fly here. When I, uh, briefly lived in Ontario, um, and I was overwhelmed by the choices available to me when it came to Dr. Who books and things which was not the case as you and I grew up here in Newfoundland. Um, nope. It was hard to find anything. It was hard to find anything. Um, I went to a uh, forbidden planet uh, location in Toronto. Uh, and of course, forbidden planet is a well-known uh, bookstore chain that has a lot of science fiction stuff. And they had this entire wall of doctor who books. And at the time it was the, um, it was the BBC books had taken over from Virgin publishing. So they had the, the line of, uh, of new Doctor Who books, but they also had a line called The Past Doctors. And obviously, as a classic fan, I wanted to try to get more, um, more stories Baker. from that. Well, I actually was looking for Colin Baker, but I settled on um, a story called um, War of the Daleks by John Peel, which was oh, absolutely yes. terrible. And I still I remember you saying that. Yes. Oh, it was terrible. It was terrible. Um, and I also picked up a book called Divided Loyalties, which is a fifth doctor story. And I picked that up because it had the return of the toy maker. So that's a different uh, spin on the toy maker. He comes back and menaces the fifth doctor. Um, and he tries to sort of um, 
cause a rift between himself and Adric um, and, and the other companions. That's a good story, too. If you're looking for Toymaker in print and you can find it, um, that Divided Loyalties is a pretty good story. Uh, however, in audio, of course, like I said, the David Bailey is it's absolutely amazing. I'll tell you right now, Steve, you know what's weird? My I don't know if this is because of Zoom, but my um, <laughs> my my uh, Google uh, uh, um, browser is showing everything in French. So I'm just trying to navigate my way through finding it in English. I don't know why well, it defaulted to French. You may have to reverse the polarity of the translation form. <laughs> so I'm just trying to get some details on this. Um, it actually says on this site, it says Mort de David Bailey. Yes, could you please translate that Google Translate? This page could not be translated. Shut up, Google Translate. What do you mean it couldn't be translated? It's only French. <laughs> oh, now, if the TARDIS God. is here, it, it would be, you know, all in English, you'd be able to. Oh, exactly, because we'd have the telepathic circuits that would do it for us, you know. Um, anyway, he was in he was in Doctor Who in 1977, and I will find. I damn it, I'm going to find this story. I don't care. I'm going to find it in English. Darn it, in the Queen's English. We'll in call English. it. Yeah, we'll call it the Queen's you English. You know, as as people are listening to this, they're probably going in and reading news, and they're probably reading some of the news faster than we can talk about it. At this oh, point. absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is what it is, right? We're we're it is what it is. Like I'm still in the process of learning zoom and uh, i mean there's still a lot that i don't know and um the worst part about it is having to open up again i have a slow internet connection anyway but having to open up tabs to have you know stuff to talk about um in addition to having to uh, keep zoom open as well david bailey come on boys you gotta help me here i'm now at the tardis data core which is tardis.fandom.com. Sounds like you're hacking the Gallifrey database. That's right. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm uh, going back in time, rewriting history. It's because I'm such a completist. I could move on from the story, but darn it, I can't. (laughs) I'm such a completist. All right. So David Bailey, here we go. Ah, Boy, oh boy. David Bailey, born the 4th of December of 1937 and passed away on the 6th of March of this year, of course. I'm just bringing it up here now. What else has he done? He was I Dask. Really recognize? He was Dask in the Robots of Death. Oh. Okay. Uh, again, he later played the Celestial Toymaker in The Nightmare Fair and Solitaire. He reprised the role of Taron Capel in the Caldor City audio plays Taron Capel and Checkmate. He was also considered for the role of Garmin in Genesis of the Daleks. So those are the uh, Doctor Who things he's done um, outside of Doctor Who. It's oh, quite a bit. I don't know of any um, stuff that we would recognize. Um, in his listing on the TardisFandom.com, he did. Uh, oh, he did a lot for Doctor uh, for uh, Big Finish. Like I said, he did Robots of Death on television. The Caldor City audio ones are the adaptations of that. Um, there's a lot of Caldorian characters now in uh, the expanded Big Finish uh, universe. However, I don't have much. I know the Eighth Doctor is a one of his companions is a Caldorian uh, from that you know from those the, the, from that series of uh, Vox robots and stuff, but. I don't have a lot of experience with the Caldor City. That's that's a whole that's an older audio play series that is really hard to find now anyway. Um, 
like I said, he was the um, he was a celestial toy maker in the Lost Stories Nightmare Fair. He was a celestial toy maker again in the Companion Chronicle story Solitaire. Uh, he did audiobook readings of Murder in the Dark and Trick or Treat. So uh, that's his um, that's his range of Doctor Who audio. Just just fantastic. And I was kind of saddened yeah, that. Um, bit. Yeah, I'm saddened he passed away because he was such a fantastic, like just such a fantastic celestial toy maker. And to be honest with you, when they have recasted um they did it with the ronnie too uh they got a scottish actress uh siobhan oh i'm gonna get the name wrong siobhan redmond i believe her name is they got her to um well, at least you pronounced siobhan right most people look at that and they don't know how to pronounce it there's it's funny because there's a local politician here named siobhan cody and um my my friend richie who works for the city of St. John's. Uh, he, um, he knows obviously a lot of the politicians on a local level and stuff. And yeah. for the longest time, he would say, uh, my friend Shaboyne. Shaboyne. And I'd be like, I've heard people say Sayoban. Yes. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And eventually oh. I realized he's talking about Siobhan Cody. The, you know, the, the, well, right now she's actually the deputy uh, premier in Newfoundland. But yeah. uh, <laughs> but it was really funny that he would he would just say that. I said her name is Siobhan, dude. Come on, like you know, um, no, your Gaelic names. You shouldn't be pronouncing them exactly. And and yeah, when they casted Peter Capaldi as the twelfth Doctor, I noticed that alongside casting, of course, the uh, female uh, uh, Master when they had Missy, who was tremendous. Um, she was really they went ahead and just recasted when when Kate Amara passed away they recasted the Ronnie uh, in Mm -hmm. one story with Colin Baker Um, and this woman was uh, Siobhan Redmond she was wonderful I thought why can't she be the Ronnie on television like why are all these wonderful wonderful actors just I shouldn't say relegated but they're only they're only available to dedicated Whovians who know what Big Finish is and follow the big finish storylines and stuff when they could absolutely reprise characters on television. It's, 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 well, that's, I don't know, especially, especially with time Lords, because it doesn't matter what they look like. They can just say, well, I regenerated and now I look completely different. She doesn't have to look like uh, the the previous. uh, I think we've only ever seen one. Yeah, we only ever saw one Ronnie. Yeah. Ronnie, yeah. and you don't know where in her time stream, like you don't know which Ronnie she is, right? Like, no, you don't know if no, she's, that's true. You don't know if she's the first Ronnie or the millionth Ronnie. You don't know, right? So, yeah, um, yeah she was. Shimon Rebin was wonderful, and I mean, Big Finish again is wonderful. And I got to be honest, I um, it might be the fact that when I first became a fan of Doctor Who, it was, you know, Sylvester McCoy was the Doctor, and then since then, of course, they casted Peter Capaldi. But man, Doctor Who and Scottish stuff is funny. Like yes, I just love everything that like everything that that they pronounce. And David just, Tennant that, that too. Whole, yes, but Tennant doesn't play the role in a Scottish accent, right? Like he no, no. Well, except for one episode, but yes, except for still yeah, has, except for that uh, one brief thing. Actually, it's so. funny watching Tennant do his natural Scottish accent when you're so used to seeing him in Doctor Who doing the affected, you know. This, the the standard British accent. Um, it's um, it, it's pretty good, although it's not as uh, 
it's not as mind blowing as when you see Captain Jack doing it, John Barrowman, because uh, most people don't even realize that he's Scottish. They, they're so used to him doing his American accent right. in interviews yeah. and on TV. Um, Actually, I most find... of the stuff I've ever seen him in was with that accent. Like he's an arrow. Yeah. With the American style accent. Um, he had a show. I don't know if you know this, Steve. You probably do. Um, he had a show. I don't even know how brief it was, but it was on CBC and it was like a cooking show. And I was oh. kind of surprised. I was like, John Barrowman, like Captain Jack's doing a cooking show on CBC. Um, it was my like wife sort of actually cooking... found found one of those. I actually watched okay. one. Yeah. Okay. So you know of it, man. Uh, it's It's been a few years. I'd completely forgotten about it. Yeah, I just happened to take notice of it because it was around the time when I'm going to say it was around the time when Doctor Who first came to Canada. Of course, it was brought here by the CBC, like CBC put in production money for it. And I think that he sort of finagled his way into getting that job based on the fact he had done like so much in Doctor Who and he, they had a relationship with the CBC at the time. I think he just, you yeah. know, he might have put his I resume so. in and said, hey, I can do something else for you guys, you know. He, he may have wrote a letter and said, hey, you may know me from shows like <laughs> Doctor Who. I'm Captain Jack. And by the way, what are you doing after? <laughs> yeah, he yeah, could have, yeah, that sounds like him. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. So that's the David Bailey news, which is unfortunate and uh, sad. And like, you know, our thoughts, our thoughts are with his family and friends and he's, uh, he's fans of which I count myself as one. All right. So um Let's get to uh, more news of Doctor Who. Um, as much as I'm, it's weird to say, but Doctor Who won an award in the Jody era for this past season, which is odd because I really? never would have thought this past season. I, I couldn't even finish watching this past season. I mean, I have, but the rewatch, I, I bought it on Google Play the entire season. And is I still am sort of that people to, are actually proud to own. <laughs> it's just because I'm a completist, Steve. That's all. And it was, <laughs> to be honest with you, I've, I've said this before. Um, the only way I can watch uh, new Doctor Who is if I buy it because I don't illegally download it. Um, I, I don't mind mm -hmm. supporting, obviously. And I don't have cable. It no longer runs on CBC. I can't watch it on the cable channels, which would be like uh, in Canada, it would be like the Space Channel. Space um, Network, yeah. Yeah. Or I guess, isn't Space now owned by CTV or something? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I don't have TV anymore. I don't no, have cable. neither one of us do. Um, I'm now part of the streaming generation. Yeah, but you were also, you were an iconoclastic guy my, your whole life, dude. You you buck the train. You're not one for going for the mainstream. You always were the buck the train type of guy. Yeah, that's true. So... Yeah, the only way I can watch Doctor Who is if I'm um, if I'm buying it on Google Play, and then the Google Play is mm -hmm. my preferred you know platform for purchasing because I don't use iTunes or anything anymore. Um, so, I you you get a season pass, right? Like you buy it up front, and then every week right. it'll just download the most recent episode until the point that that's concluded and you have the whole season. So I've done that now for the, Jody's first two seasons. And I'm going to have to do it again once the new season comes out. I will say that um, I also bought the um, the most recent uh, uh, New Year's Eve special 
um, yeah. which was only like three bucks on Google Play. So I was like, all right, it's three bucks. I'll buy it. Uh, I have to say, you're you're doing a very good job of keeping everyone in suspense. What do you mean? We were talking about an award that Doctor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get to won. that. I'll get to that. Okay, yeah, get to okay. That. Come You're on, taking me. a long way it. around. Yes, yes, yes. I'm taking a long way around. <laughs> um, after all, that's how all got started. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I I buy it on Google Play and I bought the season. And the other day at Walmart, I actually saw that. Uh, that particular special, Revolution of the Daleks, um, is a revolution. I believe it's a revolution. Of the revolution. Daleks. They're getting dizzy. Yeah, I think it's Revolution of the Daleks. I, don't, I can't even keep up anymore. Um, that is twenty. I'm going to say about maybe with Canadian taxes, twenty five bucks on Blu-ray. Now, <laughs> I normally am a completist, as I said, and I do buy things physical media. Yeah. However, I did not buy this because number one, I already had it for three bucks on Google Play, and there's no special features to it. It's just a straight Blu-ray. What? And I was like, I'm not going to pay $25 for something that doesn't even have like any documentaries or anything about it. it. It has a couple of like theatrical trailers. That's about it. It's a Blu-ray. They have like 4.7 gigabytes worth of space. They could exactly. at least put a few extra things on it. Yes, exactly. So I, I wasn't uh, inclined to buy that, but I did want to point out that is available for sale uh, right now to anybody who wants it. But again, if you just want the story, you can get it for a couple of bucks on uh, on Google Play or I presume like, you know, iTunes, whatever. So, um, yeah, Doctor Who, I, I'm surprised that it won. It, it won an award. It won a RadioTimes.com award uh, 2021. And the Radio Times, of course, they had to uh, do because of COVID restrictions, they had to do online <laughs> voting. So granted, this is kind of a... Um, popularity contest but i never would have thought doctor who retained a level of popularity enough to become an award winner in 2021 um however according to radiotimes.com uh it states uh you came out in your thousands to vote for the winners of the radiotimes.com awards 2021 and the results are in so there is a listing of british television shows uh none of which i really under uh, know um uh, i will say that uh staged is apparently a comedy that stars uh, David Tennant, and he won for Best Comedy. So good on David Tennant for winning for mm, Best Comedy. That's good. Um, and in the Best Sci-Fi slash Fantasy, which is encompasses a lot, is Doctor Who. So Jodie Whittaker <laughs> and Mandip Gill on the win for Doctor Who. We just want to say thank you so much to all our fans and to everybody who voted and to everyone at Radio Times. We're absolutely delighted. This is such a massive honor, so thank you. Uh, other winners were the uh, powerhouse known as Strictly Come Dancing in the best entertainment category. Strictly Come Dancing has destroyed everything in its time slot for years now. I remember bitching about Strictly Come Dancing with Steve Lake on the regular uh, story yes. years uh, I ago. I think John Berriman was also on that or another one of those shows. Do you know what? I bet you he was. That sounds like something you'd be up his alley big time. Totally. Um, and I'm, um, you know, Neighbors is a best soap. I know that Neighbors exists. I, I know it's a show. I, I've never seen it. Um, so yeah, there's a listing of, you know, other shows. Um, in the, I, team- I wouldn't be surprised if maybe there was no other shows that fit into the sci-fi and fantasy category. Uh, perhaps, perhaps. But I mean, you would think that like, I'm presuming that Radio Times, I mean, obviously Radio Times is a legendary BBC listing magazine. 
but they've become independent over the years. They're no longer just BBC. So if they're opening it up to all of the other channels that would fit under British television, like ITV or whatever, ATV, whatever channels are over there. I think they're doing new Red Dwarf now, too. Yeah, you would think that other things would, and maybe there was, maybe there was, you know, other stuff that was considered, but somehow or other Doctor Who won. I mean, I should be, you know, we should all be happy for that. It's another award yeah. of the mantelpiece for Doctor Who, but I just was kind of surprised that that was. I'm I'm actually kind of surprised. I mean, I am a big Doctor Who fan, but I feel like the last few seasons have gone downhill. They're not as serious. Uh, everyone involved is just not taking it serious, and it's right. not as good as it could be. My problem too, Steve, is that if you if if you give awards to Doctor Who for this, that just emboldens them to keep making Doctor Who this way. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Don't don't give an award unless it actually is absolutely fantastic. Otherwise, yeah. people will be like, "Well, oh, I can just keep you know pumping out more of the same crap," right. which is what happened with Star Wars. Unfortunately, they just yeah, it did. Yes, it did. The, Although the to be fair to Star out. Wars. To be fair to Star Wars, they actually understood the level of criticism, and they have at least tried to adapt and change going forward. I don't think Doctor Who's ever going to adapt and change to no. fans. I, to be honest with you, as as a long-term Whovian, as you and I both are, I don't remember the last time that fans' opinions were coercive enough to change anything in Doctor Who. Perhaps oh, maybe it's... during the 80s, you know what I mean? Like, when they brought back the show from when they brought back the show yes that uh that was a an entirely different time when people used to you know write letters and and yeah put pressure on people yeah it was before social media yes yes and i just don't think that that is as much as fans will bitch and want to complain now i just don't think there's a concerted effort to really you know doctor who still has enough of a support system for for ratings and money Mm -hmm it's still generating an awful lot of money. And I just don't think that that filters through to the producers to be told, Hey, you guys are not doing a great job because at the end of the day, like I said, if you're, if you're going to get awarded for what they're producing now, then that, you know, that's why I'm, I'm off two minds about them winning an award for this because I just don't think that the last season deserves any kind of award for anything other than it would be kind of like if uh, love and monsters got an award. Um, yeah. That yeah. was probably one of the most embarrassing Infamously bad. Infamously bad. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to wrap up the Radio Times story, just again with Doctor Who, um, David Tennant won in a what's called a TV moment of the year. Now, I don't know the context of this. Hmm. Uh, Dame Judi Dench slams Tennant and Michael Sheen in staged. Oh, I've seen this. Yes. Okay. So you you know what this is. I don't even know what this is, but yeah. Yeah. What is this? Tell me about it 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 was on youtube i i saw it i clicked on it it it's basically um oh my goodness uh it's david Tennant and and michael sheen who have worked together on uh other things like uh what was that show good omens good omens yeah. they're, they're doing a new i haven't watched it so um it sounds like it's a stage play and it, it was it was all supposed to sound serious, and she comes on and she kind of insults them and says, "Oh, you should be doing a better job." And and it, it was it was one of those things that is supposed to sound authentic and real, but it was all pre-rehearsed. 
So she she kind of says, listen, I'm an experienced actress, and if I can do this, (laughs) you sure as hell can. And and she kind of put them in their place, and then she left, and they were like, okay, well, I guess we better have to, I guess we have to do this now. But uh, yeah, check it out. It's actually funny. It's only, it's very short, so it's worth watching. Okay, I will do that. Um, And I mean, again, congratulations to them. I mean, David Tennant still picks up awards. For everything he does outside of uh, outside of Doctor Who for years, he was a wonderful, wonderful doctor. All right, so um, I will briefly mention we didn't get a chance to uh, read and review uh, a Candy Jar book. I'll just briefly mention Candy Jar. They are a children's publisher um, uh, in England, and they have the rights to produce uh, new stories involving the Brigadier, uh, Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, of course, classic Doctor Who character. Um, And they do stories, they sort of have decided that they're going to do an entire range of stories where he's sort of like James Bond, and he has a lot of adventures long before he meets the third Doctor. And I mean, you you have to accept the fact that, okay, this is a brigadier who knows all about aliens and specifically even some of the aliens in the Hooniverse long before he meets the Doctor. So it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense, but go with it, you know what I mean? So... Uh, there's an awful lot of free stories that anybody can get and access uh, as well as purchase them. Um, but th- they put out as much as big finish puts out a new story or at least a fragment of a story every Monday. I mean, candy jar has been putting out free material for people to check out for years now. And I feel bad because both myself and Steve Lake for years have just collected these stories and we never got around and we still haven't gotten around to properly review. I think I've reviewed one in the last couple of years. Um, so I just want to point out to anybody who's listening, if you're looking for free Doctor Who stuff, and I'll put a link into the show notes, if you're looking for free stuff in Doctor Who, um, and specifically expanded universe Doctor Who, um, Candy Jar Books does uh, an awful lot of Brigadier books. They also have a spin-off series that's sort of aimed at children, younger children more so, they have an entire range of stories by a character called Lucy Wilson. And Lucy Wilson is the Brigadier's granddaughter. So uh, they have, you know, stories where he guest stars and he's like a driving force behind her investigative uh, um, desires. And like, she's like, you know, very similar to Goosebumps or Hardy Boys or anything like that. She investigates weird happenings, you know, as she's a, uh, a I believe she's an elementary school student. Um there's an awful lot of them. They, they do a lot of seasonal releases. They've done a Christmas one. They've done an Easter one. Anything that's like a seasonal thing, there's always a corresponding Lucy Wilson story or perhaps a Brigadier story for people to uh, download. They're free to download. Just go to Candy Jar uh, book site, and I will, uh, like I said, I'll put a link in. There's also, uh, uh, I'll put the link in for the free stories you can get, and I'll also mention that if you check the download section on this website, there's also additional free stuff on the download section too. So uh, one day, yes, one day, I will get around to actually um, doing an entire show where all I do is review candy jar books because they're wonderful people and they're wonderful on Twitter. I've talked to them multiple times and I feel bad because I've always talked about how I want to uh, review the stories and just have never gotten around to reviewing them, but uh, I still, I still collect them. I still read them. So. That's very cool. That's that's. It's neat. I'm going to have to start checking out some of that stuff. Absolutely. And you'd so, love uh, Lucy Wilson sounds um, 
that sounds really neat. It kind of reminds me of uh, Nancy Drew meets Dana Scully set in the yes, Doctor Who Yeah, good call back. Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. It, cool, it, is, it is more of a Nancy Drew. Obviously, it would be more of a Nancy Drew type thing than, than a Hardy Boys, but in that vein, right? In that genre. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, before we get to Exterminator, let's briefly mention uh, a wonderful little short film that we came across, uh, that I came across, I should say. Oh, yes. I have to say, Boy. Steve... Uh, wow right like that was a I've, gem i've often um jokingly mocked sylvester mccoy for not living up to being a the the quality of actor that colin baker was when colin baker was removed and that's that's actually true colin baker had far more experience in television and movies when he was removed as the doctor than uh than sylvester mccoy did however that was a long time ago <laughs> and Sylvester McCoy has certainly grown as an actor since then. And, and boy, oh boy, I have to say, I was really, really impressed. He did a short film a couple of years ago, which is free on YouTube. It's called The Last Conjurer. Again, I will put a link in in the show notes. I came across it because I follow a Twitter account called The Light of September, uh, which itself is a uh, sort of a promotional Twitter account for uh, another series he does, an audio series called The Minister of Chance. So they just happened to randomly tweet out uh, this 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 wonderful short film that is I think it was 2015 this came out, but again it's free on YouTube for anybody to check out. I'll just give you the quick um, once it comes up on my internet, of course. I'll give the quick. Uh, yeah, it was only about five years ago it came out, and it was like yeah. about 12 minutes long. So you know it's not too long. You don't have to worry about committing a lot of time, but it believe me, it's so good it. It's, it's totally worth it. It packs it a lot of like, 12 minutes. It has a complete it, it story. Really does. Yeah. It does. It has a little bit of everything. It has, um, it has magic, of course, uh, as you would expect from the name. It's got a little bit of comedy. It's got some sad moments. It's got just some bring up serious the, um, moments. Just bring up the, uh, the link on YouTube. Oh, okay. Here it is. I was going to say you could do you have it. it? Okay. All right. So The Last Conjurer, uh, yes, it was uploaded. The 14th of January of 2017 It's from a it's from a YouTube account called Hollywood hog, how to become a director. Now, I don't know if this person directed this or what the deal is, but that's, that's the, uh, the account that uh, uploaded this. Anyway, the story is Arthur Roberts, a great magician, now an elderly man who is trapped in a nursing home that he's not ready to be in. He believes true magic exists and he's good and can prove it. Oh, damn it. It's shut down. Anyway, it is Sylvester McCoy, and yep. it is, as you say, it's a 12-minute uh, thing where he is, yeah, he's pretty much, he feels prematurely placed in the middle of folks' home, and, uh, you know, the people around him are old, and they've given up on life, they have no spirit, and he tries to keep them occupied and um, and, and still sort of feeling like human beings by doing little magic tricks and things. These yeah. staff, of course, take them for granted. And, yep. and they don't know his history. And there's just, in 12 minutes, you get comedy, drama, horror. Yeah. You, you get it all in 12 minutes. And it's all predicated on the uh, performance of Sylvester McCoy. Like, I was really, really blown away by this. Yeah. He, uh, oh, man. I mean, it, it was really, really good. I, I thought I was excited when I saw Sylvester McCoy doing the uh 
the little skit there to to advertise the new season on blu-ray and that was great but this movie holy cow i i totally want to see sylvester mccoy doing more stuff where it's mostly him i mean he was great in lord of the rings but i mean that was just a tiny little part in a in a, in a huge series he he needs to be a lead in a in a tv show again he totally does because he's he's even better now that he's older he is yeah he's he's one of those actors that you know how there's some actors steve that they almost try to defy their age and they refuse to <laughs> they refuse to allow yeah. for age being a factor so they try to play somebody that's 20 years younger than they're supposed to be right then you get some actors that mature and in mccoy's case and again i'm Sylvester McCoy was the doctor when I first met you and first became a Doctor Who fan. Mm -hmm. So he was my first real exposure to Doctor Who beyond growing up watching it on TV and not really knowing what it was. Um, He's not my favorite doctor because I just gravitated to Colin Baker. However, Mm -hmm. I've, I've certainly got quite a history with McCoy's doctor and quite a history with McCoy because he was the first sort of new stories I was watching because at the time, Obviously, locally, as you remember, like PBS and YTV were pretty much replaying the most recent seasons. So we saw a lot of McCoy's most recent seasons. So he was the one I kind of had more um, exposure to at first before I got on to all of the, you know, the, the history of the show. So I was aware that McCoy got better as a dramatic actor in the role of the doctor as the show progressed. But I just discounted the fact that he was capable of doing that outside of the doctor. Then I realized, oh, this dude's like a really good, uh, like dramatic actor. And he's one of those actors that embraces the fact that he's older now and can take more darker type of roles and more nuanced, older roles. It's I mean, he's 77 years old and this was quite an adventure. And what really sets it apart for me is that one scene, and I won't spoil it for people, because I really no, do want don't. people to to check this out. I really do think this is fantastic. Needs to get more, you know, it needs to get more eyeballs on it. I'll again oh, I'll totally. put a uh, I'll, I'll put a link into the show about it. But there's a one scene where he recounts why he has such a affinity for magic. And it is one of yeah. the most well written, dramatic, well performed like if you want to talk about awards how can Doctor Who win an award for this past season, but this short film not win an award for just how friggin' good Sylvester McCoy was in it? That that one scene is probably the highlight of the entire show, but the whole show is just absolutely fantastic. It, it's really, really good, and I know we're both struggling to talk about it and not I don't want to spoil spoilers, it. Yeah. because yeah, spoilers, it's just... It's just great. So it really is. It's it's absolutely fantastic. And the funny thing was, as you and I both do, we're always on the lookout for Doctor Who stuff. And when, yeah. when we find stuff randomly, like I'll find, like you know, if I'm on YouTube, I'll find an old John Pertwee thing where he's just talking. And yeah, I mean, you you found uh, your dad sent you. Tell that story. Your dad sent you uh, oh, some yeah. information about John Pertwee. We need to get into that. Yeah, so Christmas time, um, my dad 
is into motorcycles. So he has a subscription to a British motorcycle magazine. And uh, the last page of the magazine, they usually just have a one-page article. And the Christmas issue had this story about John Pertwee back in, this was, um, I, I don't remember the exact time period, like late 60s, early 70s. So it would have been, you know, when he was first Doctor Who. Um, and him being, you know, the man of action that he is, he was the James Bond type Doctor Who, who always had vehicles and, and other stuff like that. Uh, he loved motorcycles. So um, it, it was, it was basically, um, I, I should find out what that magazine was actually. So if people want to check it out, they can. Um, it was basically just him at a, uh, at a motorcycle exhibit back, you know, 40 odd years ago. And uh, he was just checking out the stuff and it was just talking about how he loved the motorcycles and all that. And what was interesting was I was talking to my dad about it. And my dad loves the old British motorcycles like uh, Matchless and BSA and, and Norton. And many, many years ago, back in the 60s, the Matchless motorcycles used to have kind of a robin egg blue and a gray and a white, maybe a little bit of black. And it just so happens that those were the colors of the original Daleks. And I don't think many people know, but the Daleks kind of borrowed that color scheme because it was very popular at the time. And it just looked really, really good. See, so, I didn't know that at all. And I am somebody who prides himself on knowing useless trivia yeah. from, from the Hooniverse because I love reading <laughs> all the old nonfiction books and all of the making of and watching documentaries on Blu-rays and stuff. So when you brought that up, I said, no, nah, that can't be true. But then I thought about it. And you showed me a picture of a comparison of a classic 1960s Dalek with yep. those roundels and, you know, one of the matchless uh, um, bikes. Motorcycles. Motorcycles. And, and, and the colors are, are exactly the they're same. Exactly. They're exact. Yeah, yeah. They're exact. So I was like, you know what? That's more than likely true because it just, it seems like it could be true, right? Like there's yeah. no way it, they just randomly decided to match those color schemes together when you look at the exact color schemes of those bikes and you realize they produced this show in the early 60s when these bikes would have been all over the place so yeah yeah that was the color palette that was uh really popular back then but that's not the end of the john pertwee connection oh that's that's my dog trying Your to get dogs god love them hey listen man this is a this is a pet friendly show yes I love it is that's around um not the end of your John Pertwee uh, connection, Steve. Tell that story that your dad also told you. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So so then after I had told my dad about, uh, reminded him about the bikes and that, we, we were talking about John Pertwee. And I mentioned that John Pertwee was on the HMS Hood because before he became an actor, he was in the Navy. Right. And my dad said, oh, your Uncle Freddy was on the hood. And that's when I said, oh, I must be getting them mixed up. I said, no, I, I thought he was on the hood. And as I was talking to dad, I, I went to Google and I typed in. And sure enough, it confirmed. And my dad was telling me, he said, your Uncle Freddy 
was on the hood, and then he got transferred off just before the mission where it got sunk. And as my dad was telling me that, I read that John Pertwee was on the hood, and he happened to get transferred off just before it got sunk. So both my uncle and John Pertwee, their lives were basically saved because someone decided uh, they should be transferred somewhere else. Yeah. And um, my, my grand, uh, sorry, my great uncle, uh, his name was Freddie Pitcher. And so both of them had names, surnames that started with a P. Yeah. So it's very possible that both of them may have been, well, they, they could have known each other. They could they have been, have been in, both in the same mates. Section. They could have been friends. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. So if, if, especially if they did things in an alphabetical sense, you know what I mean? Like they, they had people would, yeah. mustered together at a certain alphabet, you know, a certain surname and stuff. Yeah. That was absolutely fascinating. The only, the only thing I can say about that is that obviously you and I are, you know, we're, we're, we're history buffs and being from Canada and being from Newfoundland, we've got a lot more of a uh, connection to British stuff than, than I would even argue the rest of Canada does. Uh, because yes. I mean, you know, the New- Newfoundland did not become a part of Canada until 1949. Uh, it was the last, well, actually not now, but it was the last province anyway, to become, um, yeah. to become part of Canada. Um, it is not the last territory, of course, because there's been more since, but, um, we, you, you and I, and I've talked about this before, you and I grew up with a more salient connection to, I'll say to British stuff more than I would argue the rest of Canada does because we would have, I mean, you, we grew up with Coronation Street reruns. We grew up with, we had, in my case, I had grandparents that were British, like you wouldn't believe, that were big on the royal family. Uh, my, my, my parents are like the first generation of Newfoundlanders that were not British citizens. You know what I mean? Like my grandparents were British citizens. So there was a lot of, you know, stuff exported here to Newfoundland that was originally from England. So, they, you know, they have that that still stands around today to such a degree that in a lot of local stores, there's an authentic British section in local stores where you can get authentic British merchandise, whether it be foodstuffs or whatever you want. And that's catering to the older generation of people who have a fondness for, you know, the, the, the history of Newfoundland in terms of being a British colony. So what I know about that story way back before you you're telling me this story is that when i first became a fan of doctor who uh you know 16 17 18 when i first met you um one of the things i knew just because i read one of the uh biographies or nonfiction books about doctor who i read about you know john pertwee being on the hood and i didn't really make the connection that there would be anybody from newfoundland even though i should have thought so but that Mm -hmm. there would be anybody from Newfoundland that would have been on such an historically important ship because everybody remembers the hood getting destroyed by the Bismarck and the hood was the flagship of the British fleet, the Royal Navy. So, I mean, I mean, they made songs about that movies about that, you know? (laughs) So I was living with this guy and you know who I'm talking about. I was living with this guy, Patrick Drukin, right? Right. And 
he was a bit of a BS artist. Let's just let's just be kind. <laughs> he was a BS artist, right? So he yeah. would always be shooting his mouth off and you know, one of these braggart kind of guys. And one day it just came up in conversation because again, this was shortly after I became a Hoovian. So I said to him, Did you know the guy that played the third doctor was actually aboard the hood? Because we were talking about World War II. And he said, yeah, so was my grandfather. I said, come on. I said, you're just making that up now to try to be a braggart. And to give an example how long ago this was, mm-hmm. we had to use dial-up internet to try to find <laughs> a historical database that lists his grandfather as being a member of the hood. And even then, I didn't believe him because the internet was still new. And I thought, oh, this could just be you know, BS. So we actually called the Historical Society of Newfoundland, got them to check to the point that he could confirm. He couldn't confirm that his grandfather knew John Pertwee or had served at the same time as John Pertwee on the hood, but had indeed been assigned to the hood and obviously survived that. So whether or not that ties into your great uncle, I don't know, but it's just it's weird to think that there is somebody who we know as the third doctor in Doctor Who that may have had elbow room with people mm-hmm. related to us. That's something yeah. completely, that's not something I'm accustomed to at all. Right. No, no, that's, that's quite fascinating. Actually. It really is. Yeah. That was good. Steve. <laughs> it is time, Steve. Time it for the main time. event. Steve. It's time for the main event. All right. All when right. You think exterminator. You think of the Daleks, right? Well, I I think of Daleks. I think of uh, Davros, and um, that that's pretty much it, right? Oh, uh, and I, I also think of our our friend Daryl from high school, who uh, <laughs> who was big time into action movies, and and he used to uh, come up with fictional versions of himself that you know were inspired by all the movies he used to watch, and he used to call himself. What was it? Oh, the detonator. That's what yes. it was. Yes. Yes. Well, the thing about Daryl, as we've said before, was that he would com- he would constantly rewrite and modify every story based on his most recent movie experience. He'd oh, take yeah. the story yeah, in a whole different direction. He, he had to incorporate bits of, you know, the latest last action hero and, and everything. Arnold yeah. Schwarzenegger and all that into it. So you we're going back beyond that. We're going back to 1980 now. Back beyond. You and I have a a wonderful nostalgia for the 80s and a fascination for all things 80s. The last great era, my friend. Um, I can honestly say that the era of gritty action movies that were not that were not ridiculous 80s movies. um, (laughs) I was too young, obviously, to remember when they would make these gritty action movies, post seventies, post Vietnam uh, action movies, starring these grizzled Vietnam veterans. Um, and they actually made them with a little bit of seriousness about them. Um, because by the time it got to the Arnold Schwarzenegger era, they're not serious at all. They're Schwarzenegger jacked to the gills and, yeah. you know, shooting stuff and just being jacked. And it was amazing, but there was a subgenre of movies that, uh, began, I would say, probably the most the most well known of it is probably Rambo, the most well known action movie yeah. involving a a Vietnam veteran who gets hassled. You know, I would say that's probably right. Yeah, and then this comes out, this movie, The Exterminator, 
comes out in 1980. And again, I would have been too young at the time and I wouldn't have been allowed to watch it. Uh, no. But it is quite, quite the movie for many, many, many reasons. Uh, it is free on YouTube for anybody to watch. Uh, we're going to talk about the Exterminator and the sequel Exterminator 2, both of which are free on YouTube. I will once again put the links into the show notes to ensure that people get a chance to watch the gloriousness that is these two movies. Let's begin with the first movie, Steve. Uh, do you have the um, a plot synopsis for the first movie? Uh, I do, in my head. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm I'll like you. I, I don't like to keep a, a bunch of tabs open on my Okay, computer I'll bring it up. I'll bring... My, my computer makes too much noise <laughs> when I'm typing at it. All right, buddy. I'll bring up... <laughs> I'll bring up the storyline here. Um, okay, so the first movie, 1980, The Exterminator from Internet Movie Database, when John Eastland's best friend, Michael Jefferson, is mugged and left permanently crippled, he decides to do something about it. Jefferson had saved Eastland's life in Vietnam, and now it's time for Eastland to get revenge for his friend. Using his old army gear, he sets out on a crusade to clean up the streets of New York using the name The Exterminator. So there you go. The Exterminator. The man they pushed too far. <laughs> well, sir, let's talk about it. Yes, the story let's do is that. Pretty, um, I'm guessing it was going to be gritty for its time, but it, I can't it, say it holds up as being gritty now. Well, yeah, movies movies have changed quite a bit, but I mean, it's it's gritty. It's got a lot of violence. It has a lot of themes that you wouldn't really want to talk about in in your average movie. I mean, it deals with with drugs, with with sex, um, you know, violence, killing, war, um, a lot of racism going on in there yep. too. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people getting killed <laughs> yep. and that's what makes it so great because a lot yes. of that stuff you don't see anymore. It's, it's a no, style it's, of movie that died out. In, yes. It's all, it's, it's unfiltered and it's not, it's not sanitized for your protection the way movies are now. Yes. And yeah, there's not, sure. I mean, there's, there's obviously arbitrators. There always was. There was always a censorship bureau, one way or the other, uh, to make sure that movies get a certain rating and stuff. But it seems like now they do skew away from weighty topics like racism or post-traumatic stress disorder from Vietnam veterans or anybody in a war, I guess. Yeah. Let's, let's just say they didn't make a comic based on The Exterminator because it wouldn't have been approved by the Comic Code Authority. No, sir, it would not. It would not. Um <laughs> Yeah, so in terms of its grittiness and violence, very much a product of its time. Uh, that wouldn't hold up as being anything uh, amazing now. Uh, it would be, we're so desensitized to it now with, you know, this was 1980s. So in reality, it had only been a couple of years since big budget mafia movies like The Godfather had come out that sort of right. redefined what violence was capable of being depicted. Yeah. So, um it was one of the movies that explored in a Hollywood sense, a returning Vietnam veteran and the life that they have after Vietnam, very much an American thing. I mean, yes, there were Canadians that were involved in Vietnam, but that's not a war that we were officially involved in. Right. So no. 
because of that, it's a very it's a very American movie that if you if you're an American, you're probably going to be more engaged with the main character than you and I would have been. Like I viewed him as okay, he's a Vietnam veteran, I get that. Um but I wasn't terribly engaged because that was not a war we were involved in, is the best way to put it. Um yeah. I understood it was an American movie made for American audiences. You know what I mean? So um, the first thing is the casting. Okay. We have to talk about the casting first and foremost, because that sets the tone for everything else. So they cast an actor who I'll be honest. When I first saw this movie, I thought, is this this first, is this, this actor's first movie? And it turns out it's not. This guy was actually like a, a, a pretty decent actor who had a lot of credits his name is Robert Ginty. Uh, he's passed away yep. now since 2009, but he had been in some stuff and he had been in some stuff after the fact. In fact, he had been in stuff that he's more known for than the Terminator. And like his appearances in Terminator one and two are like a cult part of his career that yeah. only a certain segment of his fans would even know. Other people know him for much, you know, much, much more uh, well-regarded things. But I have to say like, he was not, he wouldn't have been somebody I would have wanted to cast in that role because number one, he's, he's tall, he's blonde. He's built like an NBA player. Uh, like, like he looks like, he looks like Larry bird. Yeah. He, he doesn't exactly look like your, your classic action hero. No, uh, no movie star. He, he looks more like, but first when I saw him, his face reminded me a lot of, um tom paris from from star trek voyager played by uh who's it uh robert duncan mcneil mcneil yeah um he he really kind of has that kind of baby face look to him but i mean it just goes to show that this could happen to anyone you can be the the most smiling most friendly person in the world and then if someone messes with your best friend you can turn into a monster and go after them and kill them. So that's what this character does. Yes, absolutely. Um, to me, as a production, as a movie, yeah, his acting detracts from the seriousness of the movie because it does seem like he's just not that good an actor. Now, maybe it's because... Again, you and I grew up in an era where there was more polished and more ridiculous action movies. So we're yeah. more used to the Jean-Claude Van Dams and the and the Dolph yeah. Lundgrens and guys yeah, like that. That's true. That's true. That could be it. I do like your point about this could be maybe they intentionally did it so that he was like more of an everyman that you yeah. could read into him, you know, as more of an everyman. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Um, however, it doesn't. He's still not that great an actor. <laughs> He's really not. He, I, I I agree. He he was not. Um, he doesn't look like you know most people's first choice for that role. And um, no, the acting was great. But I mean, overall, the movie was entertaining, and everything about it was was good. Um, but we we won't go into too much detail about that yet. Well, we'll get there. No, we'll get there. Um, I actually thought that the most violent stuff that really happens in this movie was set in Vietnam. They did a lot of explosions. Like they really, yeah, they kind of front loaded the movie 
with a lot of, you know, the classic Vietnam M16s going off and landmines and IEDs. Explosions. Helicopters. A lot of violence to begin the movie. That set the tone. But then the rest of the movie didn't really live up to that. You know what I mean? Like, it seemed like they, they set the tone. They whet your appetite for some serious hardcore action at first. But that ends up being just a prologue to explain why he's kind of prone to violence and prone to having kind of a hair trigger kind of temper as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, I will point out that special effects guru, Sam Winston worked on this movie prior to Terminator, of course, um, in the scene where a character is beheaded. That is a Sam Winston doll that they use uh, that, that be, you remember that scene when they first capture when the Viet Cong yep. captured them. Yep. They had, um, an animatronic person that uh, gets beheaded and yep. um, it, it looks pretty good. You know, it, it, it does good for its time. Yeah. It, it very good for the time. Um, you know, by today's standards, not quite as good, but still overall, uh, I have to say that part was really, really well done. Yeah. I would say that it was probably, you know, like if you look at movies, Jaws, Taxi Driver, violent movies back then, yeah, they they it it holds up. Stan Winston's work in that scene, to me, in a small production like this, because this was only like two million bucks to make or something. Um, yeah, it was. That holds up to me as well as like a movie like Jaws, where you get to see you know um, what's his name um, the oh the headless yeah, the headless he, scene. Uh, Oh, the damn! Somebody, I believe it is. Tip of yeah. my tongue. Um, That's old. Yeah. Someone sells boat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they go down looking around. Then all of a sudden, his 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 half, head pops out. Yeah, his half uh, decomposed head pops up. Yeah, scared yeah. the bejesus out of him. And that, to me, is probably the best compliment I can give to Stan Winston in that sense because yeah. his special effects held up to being as realistic there Matt as Gardner. that did in thank you ben carter ben carter ben okay that's all ben carter's boat yeah ben carter yeah okay i think it was ben carter well anyway it's somebody carter it's it's ben something we'll think about it we'll think about it we'll remember it okay um okay. <laughs> but yeah it it holds up to that standard so i got to give it to that now the special effects as the movie progresses are realistic enough to get by right like they don't sensationalize the violence but they also don't dwell on it either i don't think no no they don't uh and most of the violence later on is mostly limited to explosions uh flamethrower uh guns being fired uh, they they mention some stuff and they don't actually show it. And that's probably due to budget. And it's always better to leave it up to someone's imagination. They they mention, you know, this guy, he tied up two people, two gang members that uh, attacked his friend. And he just tied them up and left them in, in this basement that was just full of garbage and, and bits of... Uh, well, it looked like it was almost from a from a restaurant. Bits of of food everywhere, and the rats were going over everything. And the rats just started eating these two guys alive. 
Yeah. And they didn't show that, but you knew what was going to happen when you saw that was, them and you saw the rats. I agree. That was a scene where it was way more effective to have the police say that and yeah. let your imagination think about it rather than depicting it. Because you're thinking to yourself, oh, man, badass New York sewer rats. You know, like, <laughs> that's what you're thinking, right? Because this yes. movie, of course, is set in the early 80s of New York City at a period in time when I remember growing up here in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. As a child growing up, all I heard was how bad and and and, and violent New York City was. To such yeah. a degree that when I actually visited New York in the early 1990s, I was surprised that it wasn't carnage on the streets because all I, all I had been raised to believe was that New York was this just cesspool of filth and violence. I mean, it was it was Moss Eisley is what it was, right? And, yeah. and so and they, that was a movie that really did highlight. It was a movie that could only take place in New York because that backdrop was already so violent yeah. and, 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 and so much crime. New York too. What's that? And the worst part of New York, I mean, they, they show, you know, these old buildings that were probably first built in, in the late Victorian period or, or Edwardian period. And a lot of them were being torn down. Yeah. I mean, everything was just in pieces. Uh, a lot of it looks like, you remember the movie Batteries Not Included? Yes. And they, they had all those beautiful old buildings and they were knocking them down. It almost looks like it was filmed around the same area had that same look to it i i mean it did what every movie does where they have establishing shots to like they do like you know a couple of overhead crane shots and a few every movie that's set in new york has to pan through the brooklyn bridge has to it's like a thing (laughs) that must be done and they got to show you the statue of liberty and of course because it's that time they actually show you the world trade center um so it establishes like the nicer parts of New York, but as you're you're right, as it gets into the movie, it goes it, it just ascends into the grittier parts of New York. And you know, when you first see the whole catalyst of the movie is that uh the main character, you know, um oh what's it uh, Eastland, John Eastland. John Eastland, yeah. The main character is still friends with the man who saved his life in Vietnam. Yeah. So it determines that these guys are dock workers. And I mean, they got a steady blue collar living, right? Uh, John Eastland works with meats. So he's, that comes to play later when he does some stuff with meat. Um, His body is meat packing plant or a meat uh, processing plant. I guess you could say. It looks like he's, yeah. Like he's, he's, I don't know if he's a butcher or if, cause he's wearing like, you know, he's got a hard hat. He's got the, he's got the, I, I, I think he was more of a, just one, one of the guys that would, you know, uh, take stuff and load it into the trucks and, and, you know, whatever physical work needed to be done, he would, he would take care of it. He probably had a few different jobs and, could be. and his yeah, buddy did be. much the same because they, they do establish that he has, unrestricted access later to the um to the, to the meat packing plant buildings um yeah. so he has some kind of authority where you know he either snuck in or he managed to use whatever authority he had like he had keys to get in whatever um 
and he knew nobody would be there because he he definitely uses that to his advantage later. Yes. Um, yes. But the movie begins with um, you know like establishing that John Eastland's good friend uh, saved his life in Vietnam. They're still good friends to this day. They're about to go have a cup of coffee, and suddenly, uh, this this friend of his gets just abducted and beaten and yeah. paralyzed by this wandering street gang. Um, now that scene was something else when they, when they suffocate him and they choke him out. I have to say that was a pretty gritty scene when all these street punks are beating up that poor man. And the way that the camera shot is all low and the way that they're laying the boots to him and they, yeah. they force his head up and you could really see the strain on his face as they're suffocating this guy and paralyzing him. Um, so that, of course, sends John off into revenge category, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, well, it all starts at the, at this, we'll call it the meatpacking plant, uh, where him and his buddy are, are working, and they say, you know, let's let's go off and have a, have a drink later. And he's like, yeah, let me, let me go home, and uh, the kids are about to go off to school. Right. And then on his way to meet up with his friend actually i'm going to back up a little bit there because you remember they were at the meatpacking plant and this oh, right. the um yes the the, the punks were trying to rob them into, yes, yes yes uh one of the one of the docking bays and it's filled with beer and they're they're stealing beer and he catches yes. them yes that's what it was that they and they stopped them yes. and then yeah. later on the gang probably followed him and that's why yes. they beat yes. the crap yeah. out of him i skipped that part but you're absolutely right there was that was the motivation for the gang to get some revenge and yeah. yes they absolutely would have stalked him although one of the reoccurring problems in both this movie and the sequel is that the way the pacing is you don't know you don't know when the gang's realize who this person was and and when they decided to stock him you know you just assume i guess they followed him home or like you just you figure out okay well they must have done some basic detective work to find out who these people were they yeah in in the first movie i just kind of got the impression that they they kind of recognized him followed him and and then they waited for him to be alone and they went to town on him and right. uh, put him in the hospital so this is where it gets serious because he, John, I should say, John yeah. reacts in a way that, look, you know, his buddy didn't just save his life. His buddy also has a wife and children. And yeah. now the primary uh, caregiver or the primary uh, breadwinner is completely paralyzed. Like he spends the rest of the movie paralyzed in a hospital. Yes. So obviously you have mounting, mounting medical bills because it's America. Um, and, um, you've got a family now that's in utter need of, you know, financial, uh, um, assistance. So John's idea is to, cause John's aware that the doc that he works at, the doc that they both work at, uh, there is a, uh, kickback system on the go with some local mafia. Yeah. So he just outright targets the local top mafia guy who is basically providing quote unquote protection to the, uh, to the supplier of this, this production facility of this warehouse. And he knows 
he even says like, you know, I'm going to go after this guy because he's been having his hands in our pockets for years. I know he's got money. He feels justified in taking some of that money and trying to redirect some of that money to his now, you know, uh, uh, paralyzed friend and the family. So that's when the plot decides to do two things at once to not only get revenge for what happened to his friend, which he does in short order, but then have him help his friend out by getting money by just going right after this, this mafia guy. So let's talk about first. They go after the, 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 the gang guys, he catches them pretty quick. Yeah, he does. He, he finds one of the guys and uh, he basically ties him up and threatens him with his trademark weapon, the flamethrower. And um, as you would expect, this guy does not want to become a Pop-Tart. So he, <laughs> he spills the beans and tells him where the clubhouse is. And uh, John Eastland makes his way over there, goes up there, um, finds the gang hanging out there with some... Uh, they don't exactly go into much detail. They, they could have been girlfriends. They could have been prostitutes, but... Uh, I got the impression they were prostitutes because later on, the cop talks to them and uh, talks to one of them. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he basically tells them to get lost. And... Um, it also provides an excuse for classic early 1980s topless scene. Yes, that too. <laughs> and 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 a, a police investigation or... Uh, interrogation later yeah, yeah. Uh, as we find out but uh yeah he, he shoots one of the guys and the two other guys he well he basically knocks them out drags them down the stairs and uh leaves them in the basement uh with their uh furry little tenants um and that's when the, the rats, rats. nod at them yeah um yeah. so that's where they introduce um while while john has very quickly gotten his revenge on these guys and, you know, upright murdered them. Um, <laughs> you then look at, he's going to go after the mafia guy to get the money. But in the meantime, they introduce a grizzled classic New York city, late seventies, early eighties cop. Who's had enough of this crap. Yeah. And yeah. I, I loved, I, I could have watched an entire movie with this cop. Uh, this guy was good. I, I takes really a lot liked- of, Unlike the main character Robert Ginty, who uh, you know he, he's he's a good actor. Um, oh, come on, Steve. He's not uh, a good actor, Steve. Say it. Uh, okay. Steve. All right. What I'm getting at is he would probably be really good in other roles, but in this role, it doesn't quite suit him. But this guy that's playing the cop, he looks like a cop. He acts like a cop. He sounds like a cop. And I was all about him. Like I was actually more interested in in him than John Eastland. Me too. But that's not that's not accidental because the movie basically for all of the non character development they do with John, they give it all to the cop. Because the cop is yeah. basically the star of the movie for ninety percent of this movie. John ends up becoming a, a boogeyman that the cop chases throughout the whole movie, basically picking up clues. It's kind of like the fugitive. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's one thing to establish that John has obviously some issues, what we would now call PTSD um, from Vietnam. And obviously you've established that John got revenge and 
you know, he's, he's doing things violently to uh, help his buddy and to get, you know, money and stuff. But John kind of becomes a boogeyman in his own movie because you don't, you don't see him do anything in his downtime. You don't see any character development, really. You spend a lot of time. The only time you see John is when he's being violent and doing stuff. And then they actually yeah. spend a lot more time on the cop because the cop has an entire romantic backstory with a doctor. And he talk, he interacts with more people. He interacts with members of his police force. He interacts with the FBI. Yeah, he, we, we get to see a lot more character development. And, yeah, and like you actually of, as, of this police police guy. Absolutely. Um, and, and as a as a viewer, you end up because you spend so much more time with the police officer, you tend to get more wrapped up in his story. Yeah, it was very good. And I I should mention as well, I kind of skimmed over it here, but when John had the guy tied up and he was threatening him with the uh, with the flamethrower and he asked for the location of their hideout, the guy told him where it was. And then John says his his famous line that's on one of the movie posters. He says, if you're lying, I'll be back. And then Four he years says it one more time. <laughs> yep. It's it's a heck of a thing because everybody associates the I'll be back with the Terminator. Everybody. And that was four years later. And this was four years later. And I'm starting to think maybe Stan Winston saw that line on you know production one day and told James Cameron four years later, hey, while we're making this Terminator movie, let's uh let's insert that line because that, that line works, you know. Yeah. It's no yeah, wonder they used that for a tag. It's a great tagline. It was a good tagline. It, it yeah. worked really well. Yeah. So, yes, in the sense of once they've established that John is, for all intents and purposes, the exterminator, they realize we can't go anywhere with this character when he's not doing violent stuff. So let's just follow the story of this, you know, this, this, this grizzled detective. Yeah. And like I said, you end up caring more about the grizzled detective. Uh, the actor's name is Christopher George, and he was a well-known actor who played a lot of horror and B-movie stuff. He was the lead uh, actor in a television series called The Rat Patrol, which a lot of people remember from the 60s and 70s. It was like a grizzled 60s show. Um, so he was a well-known actor. And I mean, arguably, if you're going to hire a guy who is more well-known than Robert McGinty, you're probably going to give him the lion's share of the, the screen time in a similar way that they did with Jack Nicholson when he was in Batman, because they realized we got to justify like hiring this good actor um, and, and get some work out of him and get some material out of him. So for whatever reason, he's the actor that, or I should say he's the character that the, um, that the audience kind of identifies with because you follow his story more. So. Yeah. It, it's kind of interesting because he's trying to figure out, who this exterminator guy is because everyone's talking about him because no one else has gone up against the gangs before like this. And this guy came out of nowhere and then he disappeared. No one knows who he is, why he did what he did. And he's just going on a limited amount of clues. And it, it's just a pure coincidence that he kind of literally bumps into the exterminator. Yeah. Because 
the, the cop is dating a woman who is a nurse in the hospital. And at that, well, she's, she's hospital, the attending doctor who did the autopsies. Yes. Yeah. So she, she works in the hospital where, where uh, John Eastland's buddy, Michael is. Yep. And, and also where the victims, <laughs> where his victims get killed and sent to. I'm, yeah, that too. Um, mm-hmm. That that was a very busy place, wasn't it? Yeah, it very much was. Yeah. So yeah, at one point, um, John decides to. Well, he keeps visiting his friend, and uh, finally he he goes there and he realizes that his friend is is suffering. He's not going to get any better. Yeah. And like any soldier in battle, um, sometimes it, it's better to. Uh, put your friend out of his misery than to prolong it. So he, he makes the hard decision and uh, he literally cuts the lines to the machine and his friend dies. And he just, well, to be fair, he asked the friend. (laughs) Well, yeah. Okay. He did say, Hey, I'll do this. If you want me to do this. (laughs) Hey, how you doing? Uh, Yeah. I'm just going to kill you now. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't. You're right. You're right. I'm, I'm really over summarizing here. Well, um, you are, but that's a good thing because um, wh- what I note is that had I seen this as a child, I would have just been all about it as I am with most 80s things and I wouldn't have thought mm-hmm. twice about it. But now as an adult, you end up inevitably overanalyzing and looking into the how realistic it is or or whether there's a storyline that you could pick up on. And in this movie, one thing I picked up on is that the only time that John is really depicted as any kind of a vigilante who hides his identity is pretty much on the poster. Because even though the poster depicts in both movies, the posters depict him wearing he's got, you know, the um, the, the the big um, like a welding mask, a welding mask. He's got the welding mask in the posters and it really gives you the idea that he's got an entire character in his head. He's the exterminator. He's an alter ego, but in the movie, he doesn't do very much at all to hide his identity or to try to make a trail go cold. Like he kind of leads the police straight to him because he don't care if people find out what he looks like. They don't, he don't care if people see what his methods are. Like he just doesn't have any, he doesn't try to hide his actions at all. Like I think he realizes I'm going to get caught for this eventually. He's he he goes around the whole time wearing his uh, his army fatigues. Yep. And even when he's in the hospital, and after he uh, helps his friend pass on, he he literally walks out of the uh, the hotel room or hotel room um, the, the hospital room. He's going down the corridor, and people are hearing the machines going off, beeping with with alarms, and they're running past him. Yeah, like like and, 30 people would have seen him. If the police asked afterward, you know, they would have all been able to say, well, there was a guy wearing combat fatigues slow walking past us as, yeah. you know, as these alarms were going off. Maybe he's suspicious, yeah. And, and, and the wires were cut with a military knife. Yeah, yeah. So all that stuff now, you can get away with that in 1980, but now with so many decades of CSI investigations and stuff. And, and, and security cameras and that, yeah, you wouldn't be able to do it. You wouldn't, you wouldn't even write a story like that. Now. Yeah, you wouldn't. No. And you got to give it like, you know, I give it the fact that it's a product of its time. So I, I'm, I'm not overly critical. I just get a kick out of like 
none of the stuff that happens in this movie could realistically happen now and he wouldn't be caught in five seconds because he would totally be caught in five seconds now right um so yeah they do follow the the policeman more so and that's a good thing Mm -hmm. um one of the interesting things about it is for a movie that is considered to be violent because all the reviews i read the ones that were produced retrospectively you know like um back in the oh, i shouldn't say retrospectively but concurrently back in the day the reviews were all talking about how disgustingly horrific this movie is and how violent it is and stuff and how it was one of the ones that was really sort of penciled in for being violent and subject to criticism because of its realistic depictions of violence um one of the things i noticed was it's not terribly violent and doesn't go out of its way to depict violence when they don't have to whether that be a budget reason or or what but just like in the scene you're talking about where they mention the rats chewing the faces off and don't depict it when john goes after the mafia guy to sort of get money off of him to uh help out his buddy's family they he strings up the mafia guy in the meat plant above a a machine that crushes like it's basically a meat waste machine it it, it was a it was a meat grinder a giant meat meat grinder grinder. you could you could throw an entire cow into this machine basically right and instead of depicting that they actually just cut to a scene of what you could tell was just regular meat coming out of the end of it. You know what I mean? Like they just put an insert shot of just regular meat and just let left it up to your imagination that this is a human being being ground up into this thing. Um, I did find it funny that John goes after what is obviously a really powerful mafia guy and manages to take him apart in about five seconds. He eludes (laughs) the guards. I like the scene in the bathroom where he eludes the guards. That was actually really well done. I have to say that was um, that was very sneaky. Um, it it tricked me. I mean, I, totally I didn't tricked me too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know where he was too because it. The mafia guy goes to this nice restaurant. His yeah. his 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 um his heavies his minions are. Mm-hmm. They show them going into the into the bathroom first to make sure nobody's in there because obviously this mafia guy's always got targets on him. Yeah. They figure out there's nobody in there. The mafia guy goes in to use the bathroom. And all of a sudden, from out of a waste paper basket, comes John. I was like, yeah. that's actually pretty damn good for its time. And it was depicted really well. And it was shot really well. Yes, he, it was. He doesn't just knock the guy out. He injects him with a, a, a drug to knock him out, which I thought was great. Um, so it shows that he's pretty adaptable as a soldier. So... Um, he then, of course, drags the mafia guy to the warehouse where he strings him up. And eventually, after he gets the combination to the safe to get all the money to give to the, you know, to give to his friend's wife uh, and family, he just grinds the guy up, which again comes to <laughs> stuff that wouldn't happen today. But, you know, it was, it was very enjoyable. But like I said, it wasn't very violent because they don't actually show it. No, no, they, they show the results. Um, it, it's not as violent as a lot of movies uh, no, no, of the time. And I, mean, I thought it was restrained. I thought it was very if restrained. You, if you compare it to a movie like, 
oh, I don't know, one of the Friday the 13th movies. Oh, my God. Why, why is Jason killing people? There, there is no motivation. He, he just kills people. That's all he does. But right. this guy, there are clear reasons why he's doing it. Right. And then once uh, he's got revenge and once he's, he's got some money to, to help his friend's family, you assume he's going to stop. Well, he until, does. Until he there's actually... a sequel. Right, right. <laughs> but he does. He actually surrenders. Once the, the policeman figures out who he is, yeah. it's really weird in a storyline perspective, Steve, because he wants to quit and they depict that he is going to quit. But then he also writes a letter to the media to say, I'm the exterminator. I'm cleaning up New York City. So it's it's weird that it's like, well, okay, then why did you just... Why did you give yourself up to the policeman when the policeman caught, finally caught you? Right? Like, it doesn't. It's that, like they were on the same sense of whether they're going to make a sequel. That confused me a little bit. And I might have to rewatch it a few more times. But there's a lot of things that happen in that brief encounter where he. he well, he knows that the, the policemen have, have found his place. And he right. actually calls his own telephone number and says, hey meet me here and right. come alone. And we now know that obviously he was going to surrender. That was the plan. Um, but things don't go according to plan because, because the, the CIA, FBI wants him dead. Yeah. Yeah. The because government is, is following him. Apparently but, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen that, that don't quite make sense. They don't really explain it. I'll tell you what it is. It's post Watergate, Steve, because they have an entire story, which they don't even introduce to like the third act of the FBI, or maybe it's the CIA, but it's yeah, probably it's CIA. Was yeah. it CIA? It was CIA. CIA. Yeah. yeah. All of a sudden, in the process of sleuthing out all of John's um, crimes and trying to figure out who he is, the policeman gets told, you got to talk to the CIA. And the CIA, which is, this was kind of ridiculous. The CIA were keeping an eye, keeping tabs on John and what he was doing. and didn't like that he became a media guy because it made the police efforts look bad during an election year. I thought that was really stupid to introduce this political angle where, oh, well, what's happening in New York City by a random vigilante killing random street people is somehow making a re-election campaign look bad for what was then like, you know, a post Watergate world of cynical politicians. Mm -hmm. I, I just thought, yeah, you know, you're trying to do too much with this movie. You're trying to like, you know, you're, 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 you're commenting on politics and, and Vietnam and, and murder and crime and punishment. That was like a bridge too far for me. It was like, you didn't need that. And the only reason they did that was that they needed to kill off the policeman at the end by having the CIA proactively try to kill uh, John and the policeman randomly decides to take the bullets himself. Like I didn't get it, that at all. I, I, it, it almost seems like the first bullet actually hits him by accident. Like he was aiming for John and he hits right. him. Uh, but then once he realizes he's pretty much fatally wounded, he, he says, you go and I'll, I'll distract them and I'll, I'll do that. So he, he helps John escape, which is kind of weird. It's but, kind I mean, of weird I, because you just watched that character blossom into a romantic love triangle or a love angle with the yeah. doctor. 
And obviously he has much more to live for. And I mean, I suppose it's just, it was clumsily shot because you don't know if he's, if he's already, if you don't know if it's the CIA sniper missed and hit the wrong guy, or if he meant the CIA sniper meant to take both of them out to cover his own tracks. I, I don't know. He, he could have plus I, I think the CIA guy was a little pissed off at the uh, the police officer because he, he never did get back to him. He kept le- leaving messages for him. Right. Right. And then he, right. he, the first one they meet, he's like, you're a, you're a hard guy to get a hold of. Right. And I almost get the impression that maybe the policeman, he wasn't expecting John to surrender. And based on, his service in the military, he, he suddenly realized he's not really a bad guy. He's just like avenging his friend. And he kind of figured out what was going on. They do. They do point out that the policeman is also a Vietnam veteran. So maybe on that level, he sympathizes and understands. Could be. So could be. They don't spend a lot of time on it, but they do say that he was in Vietnam as well and has his own history in Vietnam, has his own medals and stuff. So, Again, they don't they don't do a lot to really show why he seemingly sacrificed himself to save John when John was going to um, surrender anyway. However, maybe they did that because they realized if we ever want to make a sequel, we can't make a sequel with John in jail or dead. So we have to have some way of him escaping the long arm of the law for this movie anyway, because <laughs> he kind of does. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's just finish off on the first one, sir. First one was a lot tighter. A lot better directed, a lot... Um, yes, it was. It was very serious. It was good. Uh, it was directed by James Glickenhaus, who also wrote it. Uh, it was his first movie. Um, and I'm just scrolling down now. It's it's actually considered to be, according to the Internet Movie Database, uh, it, it, it holds about a 5.7 out of 10. Um, the version that we saw is a more or less unrated version. Uh, which is on YouTube and which is weird because there's some racial slurs in this one and there's some uh, topless scenes and there's a lot of violence that you would think YouTube would actually kind of censor, but they didn't. God love them. Um, so, <laughs> no one's reported it yet. No one's reported it yet. And a lot of people are watch this for free, which is great. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's that one. That's the first one. Uh, again, 1980, this came out classic, classic movie poster. Love it. Love the movie poster. Um, we didn't even get into the whole motorcycle stuff, but he wears a motorcycle helmet in the poster. And again, that's... Oh, there is one scene on a motorcycle. Actually, that was probably one of the most cinematic scenes. Um, it, if they had done this movie differently, they could have had that as the very end of the movie where he kills yes. like, the main bad guy. Because there's this beautiful close-up of him where he steps off the motorcycle and there's a light behind him. He's backlit. Yes. And he just holds up the shotgun and just blasts this guy. Yeah. And there's a puff of smoke and the way the light is, it was just gorgeously done. And then the yeah. guy just in slow motion goes flying over the back of the car. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, they kind of, you could tell it was a rookie movie production because they said well we need a chase scene we need a car chase scene but we don't know how to end it so they <laughs> literally have john fall in slow motion which was really sad 
He takes a tumble in slow motion, whips out his gun, and shoots the a, a car that's chasing him to such a degree that it kills the driver, and the driver goes off onto the, off the wharf into the water. That's great and all, but I mean, guys, slowing down a falling man just reminded me of the Incredible Hulk back in the seventies, right? It was just really like it's what this is a bit like then. It was like a television effect in a movie. Yeah. Right. Like it was really kind of lame. But I agree with you. They missed opportunities in both movies to yeah, big time to have John hide his identity either under a motorcycle helmet, which would have been kind of badass or yeah. the welding helmet. That's only ever really evident in the posters, but not in, really in, in the posters. You're absolutely right that I think that would have made this exterminator much more of a separate character from yes, John Easton. Yes, exactly. Like, yes. You know, don't don't make him angry. When you make him angry, he becomes the exterminator. Exactly. Because he's got the helmet exactly. and, and the the flamethrower. Exactly. Because he's got he's got a cool catchphrase. If you're lying, I'll be back. Yeah. He's got a history with the flamethrower and weapons and stuff. So he has an ability. I agree with you. Had they had they went all in on this guy kind of has a um uh, almost a schizoid separate personality mm-hmm. and that if he gets pushed too far he kind of goes in and he drifts into like this exterminator character that would have been a lot more that yeah, would have been a lot more cinematic cool. and a lot better you know a lot better I, done i think we should get into our time machine and pitch this idea to the guys <laughs> when they're writing yeah. the script because they only ever have him do that. He sends a letter into the media and says, I'm the exterminator. But other than that, they don't, yeah. he doesn't go all in on that, right? Like they really no, should have. They really should. They missed an opportunity in both movies. But anyway, let's get to the second one. Um, arguably one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> um, difficult to justify as a sequel. There is some good stuff about it. We'll talk about the good stuff, but boy. Uh, the writer of the first one and the director of the first one declined to get involved in this one. So it was one of those movies that doesn't start off on the right foot because it does not have the original creative forces behind it. Um, so it has a completely different director, completely different writer. Um, and this one was really plagued by an awful lot of budget and production issues. Uh, this one yeah. came out in 1984 uh, it, it holds a 4.5 out of 10 on the Internet Movie Database. Uh, the first one made a good bit of money. Uh, this one didn't. This one really took a lot of took a lot of hits. This one um, went over budget, as I found out when you said, yeah, because we, we spoke briefly just to make a few points to remember for for this uh, podcast. And um, some of the points I made, you, you said, yeah, you should, you should read the behind the scenes. It'll make right. more sense. Right. Well, I will say that this one was more comic booky in the sense that they intentionally set up an antagonist and a protagonist. Um, yeah. John's motivation was very similar. He tends to flip out when people paralyze people close to him. Um, in this movie, it's been a couple of years. Um, he's he's sort of still drifting around with jobs. He obviously can't go back to the same job. Um, 
the only real character development you get is that even though at the first at the end of the first movie you assume he's done being the exterminator this is where it gets weird because in the second movie the first scene you see him in he's asleep on a couch in his apartment and he's got a police scanner so he's obviously still responding to um cries for help and he's still keeping an eye on what the police are doing and his own way he's trying to clean up the streets as it were and this is where it gets into this movie is more graphically violent than the first one and arguably this one is a bit more sensationalistically violent because yeah you start off with a um a much more violent as violent as the um excuse me as violent as the first movie was in in paralyzing john's friend this one is actually kind of worse because it starts off with a roving band of really bad dudes who uh, are holding up a liquor store and they kill both the mother and father uh, or, or i guess you could say that they were grandfather people because they refer to each other as nan and pop and and, and grandmother and grandfather um mm-hmm. they're obviously an old presumably Jewish couple that are running this, uh, you know, this neighborhood liquor store. Um, and they just straight up shoot these people. I mean, they're begging, you know, and it's really kind of, it's yeah, kind of graphic. They didn't have to kill them. They could have gone on their point, their guns took some liquor and left, but no, they, they decide bang, bang, shoot them. Right. Because, well, they, one of them gets a hair trigger and, and, and shoots the, the, the man, and then they figure, well, we can't leave any witnesses. So while right. the wife is 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 crying over, you know, the man's dead body, they just upright, ba-boom, ba-boom. So I was thought, okay, you're starting off this movie. The first movie was really, really front-loaded with violence, but that was a backstory of Vietnam. This is like, okay, Personal. this is this is, you know, it seemed like it was violence for violence sake to really show this city needs a guy like John, right? Um, these these punks don't get far because they walk out the door. And what happens, Steve? They walk out and uh, there's a man wearing a welding mask and holding a flamethrower. And uh, let's just say um, they drop some alcohol because uh, they got toasted. <laughs> yep. He burns those mofos, man. Yeah. Now, one thing I want to point out before we go into the rest of the plot is something that I didn't, I wasn't aware of watching it, but when I read the trivia after the fact, I went, oh yeah, I can see this. Every scene of John as as the terminator or uh, exterminator, Extreme. which he does wear helmets more so in this one, not not a lot, but enough. Every one of these scenes is a pickup shot of his stunt double. At no point in time is it actually that McGinty actor because they had two different production schedules for this movie where they shot about 40 minutes worth in New York City and then decided to pick up more stuff in Los Angeles. And this is where it gets kind of wonky because that is pretty evident in the movie itself with how, how weird and how disjointed the movie is. But Every scene he's in where you see just a, a, a tall man in a welding uniform walk into scene and hit the flamethrower, they had to use that after the fact 
right? So it was really funny that that's not even him doing it, right? Like he's he's. I'm getting the impression the only time you see John is when you see John on screen when he's not wearing else. the mask. Yeah, when he's not wearing the mask. Yeah, well, and everything else is, is 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 a stunt double. They they do a good job. I mean you can't really tell the difference because they have the same build, the same kind of body language, the way they yeah. move. But what really got me was throughout the movie, visually, there's a lot of, a lot of scenes that they don't flow into each other. It's like they're, they're going along, then all of a sudden boom, they're somewhere else or yeah. the lighting is completely different. Yeah. Or it's just like, okay, what, what was there a, a skip? in 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 the uh in time here like what what's going on there's and no internal continuity to it at all no. no no they do that an awful lot and after looking at the behind the scenes it it explains why because they went way over budget yep. they had to do a lot of reshoots a lot of a lot of re-editing and apparently they took the movie and completely changed the order of certain stuff and it kind of makes sense because one of the things I mentioned to you was right at the very beginning, he shows up outside this liquor store. Why? How? How did he know that they were there? Did his spidey sense tingle? And you said, well, he was listening to the police scanner. But I'm like, okay, this guy's on foot. And he shows up before the police even get there. And, and later on, he, he keeps showing up. How does he keep finding the gang? I presume, and you're right, that was what I pointed out before. I, I presumed that, because the first scene, like I said, the first scene he's in, they do a pan shot of him asleep at the, uh, you know, in his couch. And you yeah. get the impression that, like, he regularly spends his nights doing this stuff. So yeah. he's obviously yeah. embraced the idea of being the exterminator, you know, vigilante street justice even though he doesn't really have a motivation. So that's the thing I'll get to momentarily, but he's decided I'm just going to keep doing this. And they do a pan shot where you see that he's got weapons ready at the ready. He's got his flamethrower at the ready. And at some point throughout that pan, he does stand up and grab his flamethrower. You assume he's reacting to what he's hearing on the police band, except what he's hearing on the police band isn't what he responds to. They don't say, oh, there's a liquor store robbery, blah, blah, blah. They just have random static that he just responds to. And the very next scene you see him in is at the liquor store scene. So you're like, well, the only way he would have known this was going on is if you heard it on the police band. But you didn't you didn't establish that the audience didn't hear that. So you're like, you're like I agree with you. It's like, where is he finding this stuff to? In yeah. 1984, New York, the only way he's going to find this stuff is a police band radio. I I think that scene, the opening scene actually was originally filmed as something that happens about halfway through the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it starts off with him and an old army buddy or someone that was just in the army that he happened to meet and kind of, you know, bumps into once in a while. Uh, and this guy drives a, a garbage truck and, Sometimes he'll hang out with them. And then, um, well, his, him and his army buddy basically get together and they go to this nightclub where he goes. And uh, there's a dancer there that John likes. And 
Um, they basically go back to her place and hang out for a while. And that's how the the bad guys initially get wrapped up with John yeah. and his buddy yeah. and the girl. Yeah. But I think what we see in the movie, all that is kind of re-edited. So it all takes place in a different order. I, I'd be kind of interested in analyzing it and figuring out exactly what the original script or the original order was. Because I think it would make a lot more sense. I agree. Like, first off, in the first movie, they spend a significant amount of time and budget in establishing not just his motivation, but who the person is that gets paralyzed and why this impacts on him so much because he's his Vietnam buddy and he's the guy who saved his life. In this movie, I agree with you. It's like I spent a lot of the movie wondering, okay, this, this garbage man fella, who's he? Because there's the dialogue is really kind of muddled as to how long he's known him, whether or not they're yeah. actually friends from Vietnam. Are they friends since the last movie? You know what I mean? Did he meet them in the time span of the last movie to now? Yeah, we That's don't know. Really kind of left ambiguous, right? It, and, it is. And especially the way the movie starts. I mean, you're wondering, okay, why is he interested in these gangs? Like what, what happened that got him back into becoming the exterminator? Um, There's no real personal reason for him to be going after these gang members. No, especially through the movie, especially if you look at he surrendered to the police officer in the first movie and the police officer basically sacrifices himself so that he can get away with it. You know what I mean? Because obviously Mm -hmm. once the police officer is dead, they don't really go after john like all of the evidence because you 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 see in the first movie that the police officer doesn't really write down all the evidence and stuff he's just winging it and he's going to track him down himself and you just assume okay well with the police officer dead um there's not a lot tying john to and everybody else that that died there's not a lot tying john to the exterminator character and it seems like time has obviously taken place between the first and second movie Maybe the people have forgotten about the exterminator, but then later yeah. there's a or they may have thought that he may have even killed, uh, been killed right. because, right. Uh, you know, he but yet really later there's a television him. update that talks uh-huh. about the exterminator, so he's still known, you know what I mean? Like he's still known, so you're wondering why is he doing this again when there's nothing that's really triggering that. And what happens is, like you said, it's really disjointed, it's it's his friend, the garbage man, um, the garbage truck driver, who obviously owns his own garbage truck, like he can do his own thing. He's not a city yeah. employee worker. Like he's, I think it's there's even a listing on the truck itself that like, you know, it's whatever company, whatever. And he mentions yeah. that he owns that truck himself and it like he's a private contractor. So you get that much. So they use the garbage truck in a weird way because you quickly establish that by this point in New York city, there's a roving gang that are now under the leadership of a cult like character called X played wonderfully, cheesily, beautifully. So cinematically by your friend and mine, veteran of jaws for Mario van friggin Peebles. In his prime, my friend, in 1984, he is jacked, he is ripped, 
He has defined. He is so friggin' good in this movie. And that's why I say this movie is a bit more comic booky than the first movie. Because yeah, he does stuff definitely. that's like, he has lines of dialogue that's like, oh, this is right out of a comic. This is yeah. really something else. Like, this is, oh, boy. So he, um, X has united all of these gang guys under his own wing, I guess. And they start committing a lot of bad crimes, such as, you know, like such as the uh, liquor store robbery and stuff. Just these yeah. random crimes in the name of X, basically. And they also try to. Uh, oh, one of the things we see early on is uh, an armored car that they yeah. were attacking, and they obviously were going after the money, but they end up killing all the uh, the the guards. They they haul a guard out of an armored truck, and later sacrifice him by putting him tied to a uh, the train railings of a subway. And have yeah. the train run him over the subway train, which I thought I think was he, he gets partly electrocuted first, I think. And yes, then yes, run over. yeah, which was tremendous. I love that part. But <laughs> that gets how John comes into this is that that gets interrupted by the garbage guy who yeah. says, I'm not having this, and just randomly decides to ram. They're, they're in the process of scattering all over the, the, the truck and taking money and stuff. And he yeah. interrupts that. And I guess he he rams their truck in such a way that he causes them to prematurely flee. They would have got away with more money, presumably. So then that's they true. somehow realize we're going to get that guy. So that's yeah. that's their thing. They're going to get that guy. And then, as you say later, they get together. John and this guy get together and meet up with the with the dancer at the at the bar. And yeah. then John starts getting hot and heavy with the dancer. And this guy says, here, borrow, borrow the truck, take the girl home. I'll just go on my way. So then they yeah, that's right. mistakenly go, okay, well, this, you know, this is where this girl lives. They don't know who's driving the truck, but somehow they think it's her because they say there she is. Well, they, she lives there. I, I, I guess they, they get, you know, uh, they identify the truck with John and with the girl and I guess if if they can't get the guy, they'll they'll go after the girl, and then they'll be able to to get the guy to follow. But there's no explanation to okay. You you think the girl was driving the truck? Oh, I get that, but you're not surprised when there's a guy involved. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, they don't even know who was driving the truck. Explain, yeah, because it's it's very choppy. Yes. So they finally progress John's character a bit. They have him theoretically working for this other guy. He accepts a job offer and says, yeah. I'll work for you. So you're like, okay, John's going to be a garbage man. And, and he's going to be a garbage man with his buddy who is presumably, uh, you know, a Vietnam veteran. clean up the town. I know. It was very on the nose, wasn't it? It was very, I'm watching the movie going, he's going to clean this town up. Yeah. <laughs> they could have called this one Exterminator 2, the taking out the trash. Um, yeah. so, so they um so so does does john and his buddy have a lot of trash talk oh sorry i had to say that well this movie has a lot of garbage in it sir uh more ways than one <laughs> so they they give john much needed character development by having him have his own relationship finally 
with uh, with a woman who is um, she wants she wants to be a uh, ballet dancer on Broadway. So she's working these, you know, not, I wouldn't say sleazy. They're 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 very 1980s nightclubs. You know, uh, yeah, it's a nightclub. I don't know if I'd even go as far as saying like burlesque, but she she's a dancer. It was yeah, it's not unless that's edited. Like she's not stripping, right? Like she's just no, she's dancing. not stripping. Yeah, she's just dancing. That's all. So, yeah. um, she's making her name for herself. She, you know, her her goal is to get on Broadway. And then, of course, what happens is she goes on a date with John in the middle of broad daylight in Central Park. Yeah. Now you take it from here, because this is really choppy. How this works out? Oh man. Um. So yeah, they're they're just walking around the park, enjoying the scenery, and then in the background, the camera zooms in. And you can see the gang members and Mario Van Peebles is there and he's watching them. And he's like, we're going to get that guy or we're going to get that girl. And then John and the girl, they're going on. And then all of a sudden, John's like, oh, it's getting close to that time. I better go. But first, I'm going to grab some hot dogs. And and you can you can spend a few minutes watching these dancers here. They were breakdancers, so man. Classic eighties breakdance. Love it. I know, I know. The he he he's there talking to the guy, ordering some hot dogs, getting some drinks, and the guys are there doing the breakdancing moves on the cardboard, and she's totally getting into it. And you know, she wants to join them. Yeah. And then she kind of she's bopping around and having some fun. There's a mini eighties montage, which I love. It, totally, totally. And then you know, it goes back to John, and he's he's getting the hot dogs ready and then all of a sudden it cuts to she's in a washroom yeah she just randomly has to go pee it it i i assume they cut out some stuff or they didn't film it so they just edited together the best they could but she's in the washroom i'm presuming this is after because he orders like you know the hot dogs and the drinks i'm assuming that, like you said, they probably trimmed something up where after they had the hot dogs and the drinks, she said, oh, geez, I got to go pee. Because they immediately go from he's ordering the food to she's walking to the bathroom. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, hidden in all the other stalls <laughs> are the gang members. Like, how did they know? Oh, I bet you she's going to have to pee soon. <laughs> so she screams. John hears the scream. She she runs out of there and they chase her. John hears the scream, starts running. There's um there's a policeman on on horseback in the yeah. park. Yeah. And he gallops past John. And she totally gets attacked by these guys. And they again, much like in the first movie, they they go to town on her, beating her up. And they ended up paralyzing her. Yeah. And and that's um, what makes John angry. That's if that's you paralyze somebody off, close to him. That's 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 the trigger point. Yeah. So so really, I I think initially this probably would have happened early in the script, but Me they too, completely yeah. move stuff around. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, it, it doesn't make much sense. It doesn't make any sense that he's still exterminator before this happens. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, she's now paralyzed and she's like, okay, well, I'm never going to be a dancer now. 
and I'm pissed off at you, John, and I'm pissed off yeah. at your friend. Yeah. And he's he's doing his best to uh, to make her feel better. And actually, this was something that really kind of jumped out at me. He he shows up at her place and he bought her some groceries and he says, I even bought you some organic orange juice. And I'm like, <laughs> this is 1984 and organic yeah. orange juice was a thing. Like how long have we been eating fake oranges and fake <laughs> food? I thought, I thought organic food was something like from maybe the late nineties, but holy uh, cow. There was a, there was a fitness. Come on. It was the eighties, man. There was a fitness craze, right? All the aerobics <sighs> and dancing and Jane Fonda's workout. There oh, was yeah, definitely totally. a fitness craze, you know. Totally. So, so yeah, she she's paralyzed. He's pissed off, and now he 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 got a look at the gang members. So now he's going after the gangs. So I'm I'm guessing the very first scene we saw was maybe him kind of figuring out where the gangs were operating. Yep. Yeah. And he may have been just randomly going out, hoping he would bump into them. Possibly, happens- because like I said, it is very, um, it is really choppy and it's hard yeah. to really follow the timeline on this, right? You could totally tell, I agree with you, you can totally tell that this is all a movie constructed of random different production shots and, you know, like they just, they, they sort of stitched it together based on what they already had, whatever footage that they had. Yeah, um, yeah. Then there's the motivation of his friend. It's like, why is his friend getting involved in this? I mean, I get that. I presume his friend knows that they targeted the truck, the the garbage truck. I guess he feels guilty and responsible because he knows, hey, if I hadn't have interrupted these guys stealing the armored car, then maybe they wouldn't have targeted me. Who knows? But And they wouldn't have targeted the truck, which then, of course, leads them to John and the Misses. Um, John and the Misses, Steve. John and the Misses. Um, yes, boy. Yes, boy. Classic Newfoundland movie, John of Um Yes. However, I, I still like this guy goes all in. He's he's like John's. If you're a fan of Punisher, he's like John's microchip. He provides yeah, he, John right. with all of the necessary materials that John doesn't already have, such as you're allowed to trick out my truck. Right? You can yeah. trick out my truck, and we're both going to totally take guns. And we're going to use the truck like a tank and we're just going to go to town. They find out where um, X's hideaway is to because X pretty much runs a um, like this Brooklyn building and and like all of his gang members hang out there Uh, and they do like ridiculous initiation ceremonies. And like, I mean, this is just this movie's an excuse. It's over the top. Yeah, it's over the top. It's an excuse for Mario Van Peebles just to be over the top. I'm getting the impression they gave him a lot of leeway and said, look, you make up your own dialogue. Who cares? You know, because he, he says stuff that makes no sense to the movie or he doesn't have to say it. Um, there is a scene where John comes across X's brother, even though his brother calls X X. <laughs> <laughs> There's one scene where they introduce X and, you know, and, and talking to his brother and he refers to him as X. And I'm like, why are you referring to your brother as X when it's a two of you alone? You know, yes, granted, you're all in the same room, but like you're off to the <laughs> side talking. Like you could just call him whatever his real name is because obviously he has a name. So they they depict John lighting up X's brother, which gives X the like X already had a motivation to kill John and or the woman based on 
how dare they interrupt my armored car heist? But now he's all in. Now he's starting to get really like he starts shaking down other criminals to try to get more information on X. He spends the whole movie trying to get information on X or I should say information on the exterminator. Um, Now and the exterminator. Right. And, and, and you could tell the second movie was made post a team being on television because (laughs) they trick out the garbage truck, just like they would in a team. Totally. It's, it, it's, it, it becomes like a vehicle out of Mad Max. And, yes. Yeah. And yeah, it was, you're right. It was really like the, it was 80s. Thing. It was, it was, it was again, a product of its time. What was working on TV vehicles who could do cool stuff. Yeah. And specifically, what was the number one show when this movie was being made? It was a team. Uh, so they tricked the out. They just stole it from a team and tricked out. Maybe that's even why they put the garbage truck in the movie to begin with. So they could trick it out later, because otherwise, what's the point of the garbage truck being in the movie? Um. Well, yeah, yeah. Um, you got a good point there. Yeah, and the funny thing is, in the trivia, they talk about how the scenes they shot in New York used a real New York garbage truck, but later when they shot scenes in L.A they found out that LA garbage trucks are completely different. And instead of they, they couldn't fix the garbage trucks to look like a New York garbage truck. So they drove a New York garbage truck from New York city to LA in order to participate in the filming of this movie. It's like, guys, if you had no budget to begin with, wouldn't it have been cheaper to do something to trick out, like, you know, to fake it. But no, they, they took a real actual, wow. New York City garbage truck and drove it cross country. I want to see that movie. That's the movie I actually want to see. Exterminator on tour. That's what I want to see, right? <laughs> coast to coast exterminator. That's what I want to see. <laughs> uh, the the reason the uh, the stunt man was in the movie so much wearing the mask is because Robert Ginty was actually so busy driving the garbage truck across the United <laughs> States. He was the driver because they couldn't afford anyone else. There was um, some weird, weird scenery. The first movie had a lot of um, serious taxi driver moments to it. Like it was very much a late 70s, early 80s, gritty kind of vigilante movie. This movie, it's a bit, like I said, a bit more ridiculous. Because not only do you have like an antagonist in X, but you have a scene where for no reason... They they hired uh, the 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 directors hired a guy who was not an actor, but they saw him on the streets of New York, and he does this rollerblading routine, and he's a wonderful rollerblader. So they cast him in the movie to be this rollerblader guy, whose only real motivation in the movie, only real thing he does, is he randomly kidnaps a girl on the side of the road so they can drag this girl back to their lair and test out drugs on her. You never see her before. You never see her again. She nods out in a chair. Remember that scene? She nods out in a chair, never to be seen again. The story completely forgot about her. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, there was a lot of random stuff. Like, why do they have to do that? Like, couldn't couldn't they have 
like um what, what what were these drugs that they couldn't test it on themselves or or like get some chemicals and drop it in and say yep it turned pink so that's the real stuff right uh, it 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 really doesn't make a whole lot of sense um and you x know is trying to do everything at once sense? x is like i'm going to run the streets i'm yeah. going to run the, 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 the i'm going to run the streets but just you know vigil or just just violence and have like random roving gangs of violence that are going to eventually help me knock over an armored truck and they knock out a helicopter, a police helicopter. Um, and I'm going to get enough money through drugs to make myself the king of New York. So there's more drugs to be had in this one, again, because it's 1984. By this point, cocaine is your friend in, you know, in, 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 in 1984. Another show that was on the go at the time, Miami Vice. Miami Vice, of course. So, again, this movie tried to do, just like the first one tried to do too much at times, this one tried to do too much. It was enough to have X just be a bad dude, but then you had to have him corner the market on violence and guns and drugs. Like, it's very 80s, you know, we got to talk about cocaine. You know, we got cocaine, man, cocaine. And you're asking me about Sam Jackson. We, Steve we just wrote down about... Sam Jackson. Oh yeah, we're going to talk about Sam Jackson. I had not forgotten about Sam okay. Jackson. Oh good, um, good. <laughs> I saw the movie and I checked the trivia, and I'm like, wait a minute, Sam Jackson was in this movie. Um, I got to ask you, Steve. Granted, I wasn't looking for him before I saw it, but I can't. I didn't pick him out. I know I, he's just I an extra. But I didn't, I didn't see, him. see him. Um, now was that the first movie or second movie? The second movie. The second, second movie. movie. I'm I'm guessing he must have been in the background. I didn't notice him. I, mean, I think this, you would have noticed. This, this should be like a, a contest. You know, see if you can spot Samuel. <laughs> just like just like where's Waldo? Where's Sam? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate that he's listed. And actually, in in the um, in the IMDb page, they literally do have a link to him listed as this is one of the movies he did. You know, way back in the day. Um, yeah. And it's funny because you're like, but I don't recognize him at all in this movie. No, I'm sorry. It's not the second one. It's the first one. The Daisy. The first it one. is the first one. Okay. Um, well, I, I, yeah, I, never, I don't remember him at whatsoever. And I mean, Sam Jackson has a pretty, even back then, would have had a pretty recognizable look. He, you know. he hasn't changed much. No. Yeah, he hasn't. And yet he's not. I have no idea, man. I have no idea what what it, what it doesn't even say what scene he's in. So you'd have to watch the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. So, and the funny thing is, they've never. Um, you know how a lot of movies that cast people who are unknown and then go on to have a name will they'll re-release and they'll they'll highlight the fact this person was in the movie. I mean, at no point in time do you ever look at any of the f- stuff from these movies and say. You know that they even mentioned the Sam Jackson was in it. You'd think that they would have enough intelligence to go, "Hey, we can we can really promote the fact Sam Jackson was in this movie." <laughs> Samuel Jackson in the Exterminator. Yeah, it would have been. It, 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 I would have. <laughs> you know, I totally would have. I'd re-release it now and make a Sam Jackson the star. You know what I mean? Like that's what I would do. But yeah, With to special to summarize- commentary. By Samuel L. Jackson talking about how he stood in the background tying his shoe. <laughs> To summarize this, Steve, 
the second movie is a choppy, abortive effort to recapture what made the first movie good. Um, yeah, yeah. It is enjoyable for the cheese factor of Mario Van Peebles, mm-hmm. who gets a lot of screen time, the best lines. Um, he gets to do an awful lot of stuff. He kills people. He shoots people. It's great. Um, I know that the actor who plays um, John's good buddy, I'm trying to remember where I knew him from. You wouldn't know this, but he is a big part of a television show called Banshee much later, like Banshee only oh, about okay. a couple years ago. Uh, Banshee is a wonderfully dark and twisted TV show, um, cool. which I very much enjoyed. Um, so that's about it. Um, in a weird way, they, they, they cripple her. And then John is unable to stop her from being killed. It was like, okay, so she's already crippled. Then later they come back to finish the job and they kill her. And then John is like, I got to settle hash with these guys. So he plows into the, um, he and the other guy, the, the garbage truck driver plow into X's uh, hideout, hideout, whatever you in the middle it, of yeah. a drug deal causing everybody to scatter. This other guy is not smart enough to realize I'm not wearing a flak jacket and I'm (laughs) driving by in a pretty slow garbage truck shooting people. They're going to shoot back at me. So he gets blasted like another ridiculous, meaningless death, like sacrifice himself. John is like, Oh no. Now the guy who owns this truck, my boss, my friend is dead. I'm going to get me some revenge. They finally use the welding uh, helmet, but he actually welds with it. (laughs) (laughs) They they use it for its intended purpose. He welds. Suddenly, John becomes B.A. Baracus because he he became he tricks uh, out this thing. He he becomes a cross between B.A. and and MacGyver and makes this garbage truck into a Mad Max like tank. Yeah. And he takes off. T- takes out half the guys. Um, I mean, he's completely outmanned and, and surrounded, and yet he uh, he takes out almost all of them. There's maybe only a handful that are left. And yeah, he but then... in classic action movie fashion and in classic video game fashion, he <laughs> takes out everybody except the final boss, which, of course, is X. Mm, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and does. then they have some weird, weird choreography, Steve. Like the um, final battle between him and X. You picked this out better than I did. Just, just play this, this, this ridiculous final battle. Yeah, this this was the... F- well, this is where it was really obvious. I mean, the, the beginning of the movie was a little confusing. And where all of a sudden she suddenly appears in the washroom without any, you know, <laughs> explanation. That was a little confusing, but... This last scene is so jumpy and choppy where the exterminator is going after X and they're, they're going down to the basement of this place. And then all of a sudden they're above ground and it's light. And at one point, John takes off the welding helmet and puts down the flamethrower and stashes it somewhere, presumably because it's, easier to get around and, and quieter. He, he hunts down the guy and then later he goes back and he picks it up again, puts it back on. And 
from out of nowhere, X sees this bag of, of drugs, which was stolen from him. And he's like, well, I'm going to go get this back. And he walks on the catwalk and he goes, he opens up the bag. And then all of a sudden, boom, he flies into a million pieces. He's dead. Like, and he's impaled on a big rod. Like it's some kind of like steel warehouse or something. Yeah. They don't exactly say where it is. Um, Presumably the, the guy that had the, uh, the garbage truck hid most of his, his old army stash, all of his grenades and, and weapons and stuff in part of this warehouse. And this is why John goes back there and the guys follow him. I but guess they don't so. really explain. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. They don't explain that at all, but um, nowhere does it kind of hint that maybe John will booby trap the, the bag with a grenade. Uh, mm-hmm. I assume a grenade. They don't exactly explain or show. It just all of a sudden explodes. He's dead. And then John walks off. You see him in silhouette walking off and he takes off the helmet, takes off the flamethrower and just drops it. Now, why did he put it on earlier? Well, first of all, he stashes it. He's running around and then he goes back and then he puts it back on and never does use it. No. And then a minute later, he drops it. And not just that, but... Oh, it's so he's, choppy. He's supposed to be a Vietnam veteran, and obviously he's got some, you know, he's got some skills. And yet, yeah. even though he does have skills, he, outside of using the flamethrower, which is obviously a close-in weapon, he's been depicted as being able to shoot people before, and yet he never uses a gun to try to take out X. Even though X keeps shooting his mouth off and giving his position away, X spends oh, yeah. the whole thing talking trash to him. And it's like, dude, all you're doing is all you're doing, because this is not like this is a above ground, like it's almost like a parking garage, but it's it's some kind of steel facility, like they're making big beams. And he just keeps shooting his mouth off. It's like you're giving your position away every time you do that. Classic 80s. Um, but but yeah, like you don't they could have just used a scene of John sneaking around. And he takes a, a grenade and puts some tape on the grenade and puts the grenade into, like, you know, the bag. He, there could have been some setup to what's going to happen because it very just abruptly ends with he stops chasing John, stops wanting to kill John, and then is like, ooh, my drugs. Well, they're there. And he goes over to this gym bag of drugs and gets blown up. Yeah, it was, it was, like it was really anticlimactic. It was, very anticlimactic. It came out of nowhere. There was no satisfaction, no buildup. Um, they couldn't end the movie fast enough. That's what it is. They couldn't figure out a way to end it. Yeah. Normally you're like, yes, he finally got the bad guy. But I was like, what, what just happened? Yeah. Yeah. And why is he dropping his flamethrower? He's had that throughout two movies and he he had it since Nam. It's his go-to. It's his go-to. He's just, he's, he's absolutely sure now that he's, he's done being the exterminator. He's not going to. You know, are, are they going to have a post-credit scene where he comes running back? Oh, man, I shouldn't have dropped this. I, I'm sorry, flamethrower. No, what they should do is get Sam Jackson in the post-credit scene to be like he is in Avengers, right? It's like, well, oh. Sam Jackson was already in this movie. We've established Sam Jackson exists Sam in this Jackson universe. Sam up the flamethrower. <laughs> so let's have Sam Jackson show up at the end of it just like Avengers. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I... It was a yeah, victim second of... movie was tor- horrible. So, yeah, uh, the first movie was it was it was a fun ride. It was a fun ride. The first movie, 
I mean, obviously, if you watch the first one, you're kind of obligated to watch the second one because there was two movies. Yeah. Uh, unless you're not a completist nerd like I am, but I'm a very complete nerd. <laughs> I, I'll trap myself into watching entire movie franchises because I like the first one, you know. Um, I can't tell oh, you how Jaws. many hours I've devoted, devoted to that. Oh, yeah, Jaws. Um, Mario Van Peebles makes it cheesily entertaining. Um, <laughs> they gave him an awful lot to work with. Like I said, he's, he's technically, just as the first movie is more about the cop, this movie is more about Mario Van Peebles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they make sure that he's the bad guy every scene he's in. Just when you think there might be something about him you might like, he does something that's so bad that you're like, oh, yeah, right. He's the bad guy. The movie keeps reminding you he's the bad guy because he yeah. does something bad in every scene he's in. All right, sir. Let's um, let's give these some scar scales. Uh, the original historian podcast. Uh, we would do a scarf scale, um, a one out of five, or I should say out of, out of five scarves on, on the scarf scale of how enjoyable these things are. Um, mm-hmm. The first movie, I personally, just for the, the timing, um, you get past the fact that the acting is not the greatest, um, but the special effects are good for its time. Uh, it's, it's still got that gritty undertone to it. Uh, you can poke holes in, in it, sure, but it's in very much the same vein of those gritty 70s, 80s, early movies. Um, yeah. You know, early movies before Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Because pre-Schwarzenegger movie. Pre-Schwarzenegger yeah. and pre-Stallone getting to be like a big action star. These were the action guys before that. Um, just your everyman guys. I'm going to give it a 3.5 out of 5 on the scarf scale for the first one. Sir, what are your thoughts? I, I was actually thinking... As well, I, I was going to say I could do a three out of five, possibly as high as a three and a half. So I think we're, let's say both of us, three and a half out of okay. five. All right. Now, the second one, um, I went into the second one with a slightly higher expectations, um, which were dashed pretty quick. Um, yeah, I will say that too. it was one of those, it was one of those movies where similar... At, Similar to Jaws and Rambo and and Rocky, if you just watch the first ones, you're like, well, they didn't really need to make anything other than this, and the rest are just all greed, um, which which is the case here. Like they didn't need to make an Exterminator two, but I think because the first one was surprisingly a cult success, that they kind of felt like, well, we got to make a second one now because I mean it made yeah. money, you know, so. Uh, they, they made it without any real thought process into why they should make it. Uh, and it is a victim of, it's a victim of, it's very, the first one's a product of his time in a good way. The second Mm -hmm. one's a product of his time in a bad way, because the second one borrows too much from what's going on on TV at the time with the A team and stuff. Like, I don't think anybody really wanted, I certainly didn't want to see the exterminator suddenly trick out a garbage truck. And then that's how the movie ends. It's like, well, what are you doing? You're the exterminator, man. Kill people like, you know, one-on-one physically. Like, you know, you don't need the gimmicks, you know? Like, I just, I I didn't think you need the gimmicks. So I'm going to go with on the second one. I got to give it, I'm going to give it a two out of five because uh, Mayor Van Peebles is worth, is worth your time just to see how ridiculous he is in this. Yeah. And you can see I'm holding up my hand here. Two is also what what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you're going, you're, you're pretty much simpatico with me on these movies. Absolutely. Yeah. Two out of five and three and a half out of five. Yeah. Yeah. And again, they're, um, you know, they're free on, uh, on YouTube for anybody's viewing pleasure. Um, that's the one thing I like about doing these movies. Although the first time we got together to talk, we talked about Robocop, which is not free on YouTube, but, uh, I think down the road when I have you on again and we talk about, uh, movies and things, I think I'm going to continue to focus on stuff that's free. So everybody can listen yeah, to it. That's a good idea. They can either watch it before they listen to us or watch it after and uh, see if they agree with our viewpoints and stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, uh, again, we'll keep talking after I stop the recording, but uh, for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I thank you once again for uh, returning uh, to enjoy some quality entertainment with me and talk about some Doctor Who and non-Doctor Who things. Um, we're going to get together again. We'll make this a, a semi-regular feature. and uh, Really? Do Oh, sure. Why not? Because we'll do more. if you're lying, I won't be back. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's how I got in. I love it. Oh, my God. All right. For the historian, he's Steve Windsor, and I am Shannon, and we'll see everybody around the vortex. <laughs> around the vortex next time. <laughs> 